Welcome back to Corona Cold Reads, my entertainment world's answer to social isolation. Um, the Corona Cold Reads troupe has now officially completed every play in Shakespeare's canon, um, and we are moving on. Uh, as I'm recording this, we are actually we have actually finished our initial run of plays, which lasted a year and a half. Um, we began the very first week that the lockdowns began in Toronto, and we met for a while every two uh, twice every week. Um, and then we moved to once a week and we really developed a core troop of actors, both pro and amateur who came together, um, to read these plays, uh, every single week for a year and a half. So, um, we are now releasing them all for you to enjoy in podcast form. They're also all available on YouTube. If you prefer to watch the video version, um, I will give you a heads up for specific episodes. If I really think you should watch the YouTube version, um, cause there's a few that have really fun costumes and impressions and some cool visual effects and things. But for the most part, you should be okay to listen in podcast form. Uh, please do keep in mind that these are all real cold reads. For the most part, nobody found out uh, who they were reading, what characters they were reading um, with more than 24 hours notice. In most cases, people are genuinely reading cold. They haven't looked at the text beforehand. So there will be some stumbles and there will be points at which people are on mute and we have to figure out what's going on or a dog wanders into the frame or we have to deal with life interfering with our um, coping strategy here. So uh, please do be patient with that sort of thing. Um, so as we, we finished all of Shakespeare, so now we're moving on to the rest of the, I don't know, written word, I guess. Um, our strategy here was to break uh, everything down into mini seasons. Um, so we, we, we begin with uh, a season of Chekhov plays, and then we end with a season of Shaw plays. And in between, uh, we do a Sorkin season and a season of, uh, we do some seasonal things. So um, one-offs for Halloween or for Christmas or things like that. So we have a romance season for Valentine's. So everything is sort of uh, built like that. Um, in little chunks. So I hope you enjoy and um, please do check us out at my ent world, my ENT world, both on Twitter and Instagram. Um, there's lots of great contact content going up there, both designed for those platforms as well as linking you back to the website, which is myentertainmentworld.ca. You can find all of our written work um, reviews from all sorts of different arts uh, branches and we also there have the links to um, each of these posts where you can find the full cast lists um, and links to the videos as well if you're interested in checking those out for Corona Cold Reads um, and please do subscribe on iTunes where you can find all of our uh, podcast content which there's tons of it we have all sorts of different series going um, we have the favorite series in Corona Cold Reads and Corona Movie Club and um season one episode one and all sorts of other uh, great content in, in addition to our regular my entertainment world podcast so um please do check that out rate and review all that jazz and uh thanks for tuning in and just like that we've reached the end of 2020 um this is our final reading of 2020 but never fear we do come back the following well what was january um, and I don't know when I will be releasing the next episode, um, but we do keep going. Well, you guess we didn't come back in January. We definitely came back in February because it is Valentine's season. Um, so we have some really great readings coming up for you. Um, but in the meantime, please enjoy this, our final reading of one of the hardest years of our lives. Um, 
we ended, I think, very appropriately on It's a Wonderful Life. Um, we had to. I don't. I can't imagine doing anything other than that. Um, I knew I wanted to do a Christmas thing. Um, and to me, the best Christmas movie will always be It's a Wonderful Life. But it's also a very appropriate movie, I think, um, in a, a really t- hard time of our lives. Uh, it's a really helpful and useful and important reminder that there's still goodness and we're so lucky. Um, and we need to remember that and we need to be able to see all of that clearly, even when it's hard. Um, so I think it's a really good one. I also, there is a a particular speech in this one, um, when Potter's trying to shut down the building and loan, um, that, uh, George delivers to him that is so apt and feels so current. Um, and it, it feels sort of how, we all want to talk to the people who are taking advantage and the people who are um, just sort of Henry Pottering all over the world. Um, And so I think that uh, It's a Wonderful Life really resonates in a modern way, uh, sort of far beyond anything Frank Capra could have possibly imagined. And it's just a forever beautiful story and it's a great script and it reads well. Um, this is one of my favorite readings, and one of the reasons it's one of my favorite readings is a very inexplicable stroke of casting genius that I, I have a hard time explaining to you, but um, you'll just have to believe me when I tell you that Victoria Urquhart is the most George Bailey person I've ever met in my entire life. Um, I always say that she is the only person I know who would absolutely give up her uh, cattle boat Europe trip in order to save the building and loan. She absolutely would. She is a righteous crusader in the very best way. Um, And uh, she never thinks of herself. And I love that about her. Um, She could maybe think of herself more. Uh, So she's cast as George Bailey, which seems weird. I know. But trust me, she's so good. This is such a wonderful performance from Tori. um, And I highly recommend you watch it. Um, Other beautiful pieces of casting include Sia Floyd as the angel Clarence. If you've ever met Sia Floyd, that makes perfect sense to you. Not because of Clarence as a character, mostly just because she's an angel. Um, we have Nicole Falgu playing Harry Bailey, who I'm very fond of. Um, Weldon Gorey is our Uncle Billy. Jess Couture, of course, plays Violet, which if you know Jess, this, she's just vampy and fabulous. And of course, she's Violet. It works beautifully. She's also playing Mrs. Thompson and the Secretary. Um, our cousin Tilly, Annie and Teller are Fabiana Cabral. Pa Bailey, Carter and the Cop are all Nicanor Campos. Um, Potter is Christopher Prentice. Um, so this is his like big villain turn. Uh, so he really takes a bite out of that. Lee is joining us to play Joe, Marty, Tommy, and the driver. Uh, Philip Jang guest stars in this one. It was lovely to see him. He is cousin Eustace Schultz and the owner. Um, Dom Harvey returns as Sam, Nick, and Partridge. Um, we also have Shaylin Bass McFall as Joseph, Charlie, Pete, and Bouncer. Uh, Gabby Grice is Franklin, principal, lawyer, Tom, and sheriff. Um, Janie, Dr. Campbell, Ed, Jane, and another man is Sadie Holloway. Zuzu, Ruth, Mrs. Davis, and another man too is Miriam Bachman. Her Zuzu, ever, ever adorable, that Miriam Bachman. Um, Marlo Shaw joins us as Gower, Mrs. Hatch, Maria, and woman. 
Samantha Chappelle as Martini, who I love the idea of uh, Samantha as the as the bar owner who's just hosting everybody. Mr. Martini, another Martini. Uh, it's very Sam. I don't know. She's so fun. Uh, and various people named Man, <laughs> all played by Samantha Chappelle as well. Um, Laura Hubbard is Ma Bailey, a passenger, a passerby, and the toll keeper. Um, Brian Balduzzi joins us. Uh, it was lovely to have him here, and he was playing Bert, Freddie, Randall, and Mr. Welch, who was very mean man. Um, Hillary Wardinger is our Ernie, our Mickey, and our Reinemann. Um, lots of famous <laughs> namesakes there. And our Mary Bailey is Elizabeth Morris, or Mary Hatch, actually, as we begin. Um, so, of course, she is. She's just got her sort of old-fashioned charm that charm that elizabeth morris so she was a lovely mary i think this was just a wonderful reading and it made me very happy and i hope it brings you some sort of warmth and happiness this holiday season as well so merry christmas and i hope you enjoy fade it it's a wonderful life by frank camp capra fade in night sequence series of shots of various streets and buildings in the town of bedford falls somewhere in new york state the streets are deserted and the snow is falling. It's Christmas Eve. Over the above scenes, we hear voices praying. I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him, dear father. Martini's on mute. Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. Ma Bailey? Guys, come on. I believe that's Laura. Yes, yes. Help my son George tonight. He never thinks about himself, God. That's why he's in trouble. George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. Please, God, something's the matter with Daddy. Please bring Daddy back. Camera pulls up from the Bailey home and travels up through the sky until it is above the falling snow and moving slowly towards a firmament full of stars. As the camera stops, we hear the following heavenly voices talking, and as each voice is heard, one of the stars twinkles brightly. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people are asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey. Yes, tonight's his crucial night. You're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's that clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence. Hasn't got his wings yet, has he? We've passed him up right along. Because, you know, sir, he's got the IQ of a rabbit. Yes, but he's got the faith of a child. Simple. Joseph, send for Clarence. A small star flies in from the left of the screen and stops. It twinkles as Clarence speaks. You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. A man down on Earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. tonight, Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Oh, dear, dear. His life. Then I've only got an hour to dress. Uh, What are they wearing now? You will spend that hour getting acquainted with George Bailey. Sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I I mean, might I perhaps win my wings? 
I've been waiting over 200 years now, sir, and people are beginning to talk. What's that book you've got there? The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Clarence, you do a good job with George Bailey and you'll get your wings. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Or George, sit down. Sit down? What are we- If you're going to help a man, you want to know something about him, don't you? Well, naturally, of course. Well, keep your eyes open. See the town? The stars fade out from the screen and a light indistingu indistinguishable blur is seen. Where? I don't see a thing. I forgot. You haven't got your wings yet. Now look, I'll help you out. Concentrate. Begin to see something? The blur on the screen slowly begins to take form. We see a group of young boys on top of a snow-covered hill. Yes, this is amazing. If you ever get your wings, you'll see all by yourself. Wonderful. Close shot, exterior frozen river and hill. The day, 1919. Group of boys, they are preparing to slide down the hill on large shovels. One of them makes the slide and shoots out onto the ice of frozen river at the bottom of the hill. Yippee! Hey, who's that? That's your problem, George Bailey. A boy? That's him when he was 12, back in 1919. Something happened here, you'll have to remember later. A series of shots as four or five boys make the slide down the hill and out onto the ice. As each boy comes down, the others applaud. Close shot on George Bailey at the bottom of the slide. And here comes the scare baby, my kid brother, Harry Bailey. Close shot on Harry on top of the hill, preparing to make his slide. I'm not scared. Come on, Harry, out of boy, Harry! Come on, Harry. Harry makes a slide down very fast. He passes the marks made by the other boys and his shovel takes him onto the thin ice at the bend of the river. The ice breaks and Harry disappears into the water. Close shot on George. I'm coming, Harry. George jumps into the water and grabs Harry. As he starts to pull him out, he yells. Make a chain, gang, a chain. The other boys lie flat on the ice, forming a human chain. When George reaches the edge with Harry in his arms, they pull them both to safety. George saved his brother's life that day. But he caught a bad cold, which infected his ear, cost him his hearing in that ear. It was weeks before he could return to his after-school job at Old Man Gower's drugstore. Dissolved to exterior Main Street, Bedford Falls, spring afternoon. Five or six boys are coming towards the camera, arm in arm, whistling. Their attention is drawn to an elaborate horse-drawn carriage proceeding down the other side of the street. The carriage is driving by. You catch a glimpse of an elderly man riding in it. The boys are watching the carriage. Mr. Potter. Who's that? A king? That's Henry F. Potter, the richest, meanest man in the county. The boys continue until they reach Gower's drugstore. The drugstore is old-fashioned and dignified, with jars of colored water in the windows and little else. As the kids stop. So long. Go to work. Hee-haw. Interior drugstore, day. George comes in and crosses to an old-fashioned cigar lighter on the counter. He shuts his eyes and makes a wish. Wish I had a million dollars. Clicks the lighter and the flame springs up. Hot dog. 
George crosses over to the soda fountain at which Mary Hatch, a small girl, is seated watching him. George goes on to get his apron from behind the fountain. It's me, Mr. Gower. George Bailey. Mr. Gower, a druggist, peering from a window in the back room. We see him take a drink from a bottle. You're late. George, behind the soda fountain. He's putting on his apron. Yes, sir. Violet Bick enters the drugstore and sits on one of the stools at the fountain. She's the same height as Mary and the same age, but she's infinitely older in her approach to people. Hello, George. Hello, Mary. Hello, Violet. George regards the two of them with mainly manly disgust. They're, they are two kids to him and a nuisance. He starts over for the candy counter. Candy counter. Two cents worth of shoelaces? She was here first. I'm still thinking. Shoelaces? Please, Georgie. George goes over to the candy counter. I like him. You like every boy. What's wrong with that? Here you are. George gives Violet a paper sack containing licorice shoelaces. Violet gives him the money. Help me down. Help you down? Violet jumps down off her stool and exits. Mary, watching, sticks out her tongue as she passes. Close shot on George and Mary at the fountain. Made up your mind yet? I'll take chocolate. George puts some chocolate ice cream in a dish. With coconuts? I don't like coconuts. You don't like coconuts? Say brainless, don't you know where coconuts come from? Look at it. Look at here. Magazine from his pocket and shows it to her. <laughs> a new magazine. I never saw it before. Fiji Islands, the Coral Sea. <laughs> I never saw it before. Of course you never. Only us explorers can get it. I've been nominated for membership in the National Geographic Society. <laughs> he leans down to finish scooping out the ice cream, his deaf ear towards her. She leans over, speaking softly, a close shot and Mary whispering. Is this the ear you can't hear on? George Bailey... I'll love you till the day I die. She draws back quickly and looks down, terrified at what she's said. Close shot on George and Mary. I'm going out exploring someday. You can watch. I'm going to have a couple of harems and maybe three or four wives. Wait and see. He turns back to the cash register, whistling. Taking in entrance, prescription at, oh, taking in entrance to prescription room at the end of the fountain, Gower comes to the entrance. He's bleary-eyed, unshaven, chewing an old, unlit cigar. His manner is gruff and mean. It is evident he's been drinking. George! George! Yes, sir? You're not paid to be a canary. No, sir. He turns back to the cash register when he notices an open telegram on the shelf. He's about to toss it aside when he starts to read it. Insert the telegram. It reads, we regret to inform you that your son, Robert, died very suddenly this morning of influenza. Stop. Everything possible was done for his comfort. Stop. We await instruction from you. Edward Mellington, Press, Hammerton College. Back to George. He puts the telegram down. A goodness of heart expresses itself in a desire to do something for Gower. He gives the ice cream to Mary without comment and sidles back towards Gower. Interior prescription room of drugstore, day, close shot on Gower, drunk. He's intent on putting some capsules into a box. Mr. Gower, do you want something? Anything? 
No. Anything I can do back here? No. George looks curiously at Gower, realizing that he is quite drunk. Gower fumbles and drops some of the capsules onto the floor. Close shot on the capsules spilling onto the floor at, at their feet. Back to George and Gower. I'll, I'll get them, sir. He picks up the capsules and puts them in the box. Gower waves George aside, takes his old wet cigar, shoves it in his mouth and sits in an old Morris chair in the background. George turns a bottle around from which Gower has taken the powder for the capsules. It, the label reads poison. George stands still, horrified. Take these capsules over to Mrs. Blaine's. She's waiting for them. George picks up the capsule box, not knowing what to do or say. His eyes go harassed to the bottle labeled poison. George's fingers fumble. Yes, sir. They have the diphtheria there, haven't they, sir? Um. Bauer stares moodily ahead, sucking his cigar. George turns to him, the box in his hand. Is it? George is frozen. Might need to say that line again when she comes back. Is is it a is it a charge, sir? Yes, charge. We're going to pause briefly while we wait for George to get um, the internet sorted. George, you want to try um, reloading or something? Or what do we think is going on? Just jumped. Just bear with us while we take a little break. As is a lot of stage directions. All right, let's try it again. Okay. Um, so why don't we take it from Gower stares moodily ahead, sucking his cigar. George turns to him, the box in his hand. Is it a charge, sir? Yes. Charge. Mr. Gower, I think... Um, uh, get I, going. I, yes, sir. Interior drugstore day. George comes out into the main room. As he puts his, on his cap, he sees a sweet, sweet caperoles ad, which says, ask dad, he knows. 
Back to the shop with an inspiration, George dashes out of the door and down the street. Mary follows him with her eyes. Exterior street, day. George runs down the street until he comes opposite a two-story building with a sign on it reading Bailey Building and Loan Association. He stops. Potter's carriage is waiting at the entrance. Suddenly, he runs up the stairs. Interior, outer office building and loan, day. The, officer, the offices are giant and a bit on, on the rickety side. There's a counter with a grill, something like a bank. Before a door marked, Peter Bailey, private. George's Uncle Billy stands, obviously trying to hear what is going on inside. He's a very good-humored man of about 50 in shirt sleeves. With him at the door, also listening, are Cousin Tilly Bailey, a washbiz-looking woman who is the telephone operator, and Cousin Eustace Bailey, the clerk. The office vibrates with an aura of crisis as George enters and proceeds directly towards his father's office. Uncle Billy's listening at the door. As George is about to enter his father's office, Uncle Billy grabs him by the arm. Avast there, Captain Cook. Where are you heading? Gotta see Pop, Uncle Billy. Uh, some other time, George. It's important. There's a squall in there that's shaping up into a storm. During the foregoing, Cousin Tilly has answered the telephone and now she calls out. Uncle Billy, telephone. Uh, who is it? Bank examiner. Close up on Uncle Billy's left hand. There are pieces of string tied around two of the fingers, obviously to remind him of things he has to do. Bank examiner. I should have called him yesterday. Switch it inside. He enters a door marked William Bailey, private. George stands irresolute a moment, aware of crisis in the affairs of the Bailey Building and Loan Association, but aware more keenly of his personal crisis. He opens the door of his father's office and enters. Interior Bailey's private office. George's father is seated behind his desk, nervously drawing swirls on a pad. He looks tired and worried. He's a gentleman in his 40s, an idealist, stubborn only for other people's rights. Nearby, in a throne-like wheelchair, behind which stands the goon who furnishes the motive post power, sits Henry F. Potter, his squarish derby hat on his head. The following dialogue is fast and heated, as though the argument had been in process for some time. I'm not crying, Mr. Potter. Well, you're begging, and that's a whole lot worse. All I'm asking is 30 days more. Pop! Just, just a minute, son. Just 30 short days. I'll dig up that 5,000 somehow. Shove me up. Goon pushes his wheelchair closer to the desk. Pop! Have you put any real pressure on those people of yours to pay those mortgages? Times are bad, Mr. Potter. A lot of these people are out of work. Then foreclose. I can't do that. These families have children. Close up on- Pop! They're not my children. But they're somebody's children. Are you running a business or a charity ward? Well, all right. Not with my money. Close shot on Potter and Bailey. Mr. Potter, what makes you such a hard-skulled character? You have no family, no children. <clears throat> you can't begin to spend all the money you got. So I suppose I should give it to the miserable failures like you and that idiot brother of yours to spend for me. George cannot listen any longer to such libel about his father. He comes around in front of the desk. He's not a failure. You can't say that about my father. George, George. You're not! You're the biggest man in town! He pushes George towards the door. Bigger than him! As George passes Potter's wheelchair, he pushes the old man's shoulder. The goon puts out a restraining hand. Bigger than everybody. George proceeds towards the door with his father's hand on his shoulder. As they go... To an idea of the Baileys. 
Interior office building in Lone Day. Close shot. George and his father at the door. Don't let him say that about you, Pop. Right, son. Thanks. I'll talk to you tonight. Bailey closes the door on George and turns back to Potter. George stands outside the door with the capsules in his hand. Wipe to the drugstore, interior back room, Gower's drugstore. Gower's talking on the phone. George stands in the doorway. Why, that medicine should have been there an hour ago. I'll be over in five minutes, Mrs. Blaine. He hangs up the phone and turns to George. Where's Mrs. Blaine's box of capsules? He grabs George by the shirt and drags him into the back room. Capsules? Did you hear what I said? Yes, sir. I... Gower starts hitting George about the head with his open hands. George tries to protect himself as best he can. What kind of tricks are you playing anyway? Why didn't you deliver them right away? Don't you know that boy is very sick? You're hurting my sore ear. Interior drugstore. Mary's still seated at the soda fountain out front. Each time she hears George being slapped, she winces. Back in the back room, the shot of George and Gower. You lazy loafer. Mr. Gower, you don't know what you're doing. You put something wrong in those capsules. I know you're unhappy. You got that telegram and you're upset. You put something bad in those capsules. It wasn't your fault, Mr. Gower. George pulls the little box out of his pockets. Gower savagely rips it away from him, breathing heavily, staring at the boy venomously. Just look and see what you did. Look at the bottle you took the powder from. It's, it's poison, I tell you. It's poison. I know you feel bad. And George falters off, cupping his aching ear with his hand. Gower looks at the large brown bottle, which has not been replaced on the shelf. He tears open the package, shakes the powder out in one of his capsules, cautiously tastes it, then abruptly throws the whole mess to the table and turns to look at George again. The boy is whimpering, hurt, frightened. Gower steps towards him. You don't hurt my sorrier again. But this time, Gower sweeps the boy to him in a hug and, sobbing hoarsely, crushes the boy in his embrace. George is crying, no. too. No, no, no. No, don't hurt my ear again. Oh, George. George. Uh, Mr. Gower, I won't tell anyone. I, I know what you're feeling. I, I won't ever tell a soul. I hope to daddy I won't. Oh, George. Dissolved to a luggage shop, day, 1928. It is late afternoon. A young man is looking over an assortment of luggage. Across the counter stands Joe Hepner, the proprietor of the store. He's showing a suitcase. An overnight bag. Genuine English cowhide. Combination lock. Fitted up with brushes. Combs. Nope. As camera moves closer to him, he turns and we get the first glimpse of George as a young man. Camera's moved up to a close-up by now. Nope, 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 nope. Now look, Joe. Now look, I, I want a big one. Suddenly in action as George stands with his arms outstretched in illustration, the picture freezes and becomes a still. Over this hold frame shot, we hear the voices from heaven. What did you stop it for? I want you to take a good look at that face. Who is it? George Bailey. Oh, you mean the kid that has got, got his ear slapped by the druggist? That's the kid. It's a good face. I like it. I like George Bailey. Oh, tell me, did he ever tell anyone about the pills? 
not a soul. Did he ever marry the girl? Did he ever go exploring? Well, wait and see. The arrested close-up of George springs to life again. Ah, big, 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 see? I don't want one for one night. I want something for a thousand and one nights with plenty of room for labels from Italy and Baghdad, Samarkand, a, a really, really big one. I see a, a flying carpet, huh? <laughs> I don't suppose you'd like this old secondhand job, would you? He brings a large suitcase up from under the counter. Now you're talking. Gee whiz, I could use this as a raft in case the boat sunk. How much does this cost? No charge. Uh, <laughs> that's my trick here, Joe. It sounded if he, as if he said no charge. That's right. What's my name on it? A little present from old man Gower. Came down and picked it out himself. He did? What do you know about that? My old boss. What boat are you sailing on? I'm working across on a cattle boat. A cattle boat? Okay, I like cows. He exits. As we wipe to Gower's drugstore, Day, the place is practically the same, except that it is now full of school kids having sodas, etc. A jukebox and many little tables have been added. It has become the hangout of the local small fry. There are now three kids jerking sodas. Gower's a different man now, sober, shaven, and good-humored. He's behind the counter when George comes in. Gower's face lights up when he sees George. Mr. Gower, Mr. Gower, thanks ever so much for the bag. It's, it's just exactly what I wanted. Oh, forget it. Oh, it's wonderful. I hope you enjoy it. George suddenly sees the old cigar lighter on the counter. He closes his eyes and makes a wish. Wish I had a million dollars. He snaps the lighter up, the flame springs up. Hot dog. George shakes Gower's hand vigorously as he exits. On the main street of Bedward, Bedford Falls, pan shot as George crosses the street. Uncle Billy, Cousin Tilly, and Cousin Eustace are leaning out the floor of the second window of the building and loan offices. Vast there, Captain Cook, you got your sea legs yet? Allez-vous, Francais? Hey, send us some of those picture postcards, will you, George? Hey, George, don't take any plug nickels. <laughs> hey, George, your suitcase is leaking. George waves up at them and continues across the street. On the main street, as George crosses the street, he spots Ernie in his cab and Bert, the motor cop, parked alongside. Hey, Ernie. Hi, Bert. George. Ernie, I'm a rich tourist today. How about driving me home in style? Bert opens the door of the cab and puts George's suitcase inside. Oh, your highness, hop in. And for the carriage trade, I puts on my hat. As George is about to enter the cab, he stops suddenly as he sees Violet, now obviously a little sex machine, oh my God, comes toward him. Her walk and figure would stop anybody. She gives him a sultry look. Reverse angle, the three men by the cab, but including Violet. Good afternoon, Mr. Bailey. Hello, Violet. Hey, you look good. That's some dress you got on there. Close shot of Violet. She reacts to this. This thing? <laughs> Why, I only wear it when I don't care how I look. Camera pants with her as Violet swings on down the sidewalk. Reverse shot the cab. As Violet goes by, George and Bert raise their ha heads above the top of the cab. 
medium shot on violet as she goes as she crosses the street an elderly man turns to look at her and is almost hit by a car that pulls up with screeching brakes close shot on george and bird at cab ernie sticks his head out from the driver's seat oh july yes want to come along bert we'll show you the town Bert looks at his watch, then takes another look at Violet's retreating figure. No, thanks. I think I'll go home and see what the wife's doing. Family, man. Dissolved to the Bailey dining room at night. Medium shot. Pop Bailey is seated at the dinner table. Mrs. Bailey and Annie, the cook, look up toward the vibrating ceiling. There are sounds of terrific banging and scuffling upstairs. Annie pounds on the ceiling with a broom. George! Harry, you're... You're shaking the house down. Stop it. Oh, Oh, let him alone. I wish I was up there with him. Harry will tear his dinner suit. George! Mrs. Bailey is calling up the stairs. That's why all children should be girls. (laughs) But if they were all girls, then there wouldn't be any... Oh, never mind. George! Harry, come down to dinner this minute. Everything's getting cold and you know we've been waiting for you. Okay, Mom. Ma goes up the stairs. Pop is smiling and poking his plate. A commotion is heard on the stairs, the boys emitting fanfare music. Down they come, holding their mother high between them on their hands. They bring her into the dining room and deposit her gracefully into Pop's lap. Here's a present for you, Pop. Pop kisses her. Mother gives Pop a quick hug, then turns with all the wrath she can muster on the two boys. Oh, you two idiots. Oh, George, sit down and have dinner. I've eaten. Well, aren't you going to finish dressing for your graduation party? Look at you. I don't care. It's George's tux. Annie crosses the room, holding her broom. Harry reaches out for her. God, if you lay a hand on me, I'll hit you with this broom. Annie, I'm in love with you. There's a moon out tonight. As he pushes her through the kitchen door, he slaps her fanny. She screams. The noise is cut off by the swinging door. George and his mother sit down at the table. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. My last meal at the old Bailey boarding house. Oh, my lens, my blood pressure. Close shot on Harry as he sticks his head through the kitchen door. Pop, can I have the car? I'm going to go take over a lot of plates and things. What plates? Oh, Mom, I'm the chairman of the Eats Committee, and we only need a couple of dozen. Oh, no, no, you don't. Now, not my best. (sighs) He follows Harry into the kitchen, leaving Pop and George as she goes. Ah, let him have the plates, mother. Close shot on George and his father eating at the table. There's a great similarity and a great understanding between them. Hope you have a good trip, George. Uncle Billy and I are going to miss you. I'm going to miss you too, Pop. What's the matter? You look tired. Oh, had another tussle with Potter today. Oh. I thought when he... I thought when we put him on the board of directors, he'd ease up on us a little bit. Wonder what's eating that old money-grubbing buzzard anyways. Oh, he's a sick man. 
frustrated and sick, sick in his mind, sick in his soul, if he has one, <laughs> hates everybody that has anything that he can have, hates us mostly, I guess. The dining room, Harry and his mother come out of the kitchen. Harry's carrying a pie in each hand and balancing one on his head. Camera pans with them as they cross. Gangway, gangway, so long, Pop. So long, son. Got a match? Very funny, very funny. Those things in the car and I'll get your tie and studs together. Okay, Mom. You coming later? You coming later, George? What do you mean? And be bored to death? Couldn't want a better death. Lots of pretty girls. And we're going to use that new floor of yours tonight, too. I hope it works. No gin tonight, son. Oh, Pop, just a little. No, son, not one drop. Poe shot on George and Pop at the table. Annie comes in with some dishes. <laughs> Boys and girls and music. Why do they need gin? She exits. Father, did I act like that when I graduated from high school? Pretty much. <laughs> you know, George, wish we could send Harry to college with you. Your mother and I talked it over half the night. We have it all figured out. You see, Harry will take my job at the building and loan, work there for four years, and then he'll go. He's pretty young for that job. Well, no younger than I was. Now, maybe you were born older, George. How's that? Oh, I say maybe you were born older. I, I suppose you've decided what you're going to do when you get out of college. Oh, well, you know what I've always talked about. Build things, design new buildings, plan modern cities, all that stuff I was talking about. Still after that first million before you're 30? Nah, I'll settle for half that in cash. <laughs> Annie comes in again from the kitchen. Of course, it's just a hope, but you wouldn't consider coming back to the building alone, would you? Annie stops serving to hear his answer. Well, uh, yeah. Annie, why don't you draw up a chair? Then you'd be more comfortable and you could hear everything that's going on. Mijo, I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth listening to. Oh, you would, huh? She gives George a look and goes out into the kitchen. Bailey smiles and turns to George. I know it's soon to talk about it. Oh, no, Pop, I couldn't. I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in that shabby little office. Stops, realizing that he's hurt his father. Oh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Pop. I, I didn't mean that remark, but this business the nickels and dimes and spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents on a length of pipe, I'd go crazy. I want to do something big and something important. You know, George, I feel that in a small way, we are doing something important. Satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace, and we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. I know, Dad. I wish I felt, but I've been hoarding pennies like a miser in order to most of my friends have already finished college. I just feel like if I don't get away, I'm bust. Yes, yes, you're right, son.
Tori's frozen again. Hey, for a Don't you pop? Yeah. This town pop. is this town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. You've got talent, son. You've got yourself an education. And get out of here. George, can you say that line again? Oh dear. Every time I have the lead. Um, okay, Pa Bailey, can you take it from this town is no place? Certainly. This town is no uh. place for... This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. You've got talent, son. You've got yourself an education. Then get out of here. Pop, do you want a shock? Great. Mm -hmm. I said, I think you're a great guy. Oh, <laughs> did you hear that, Annie? Annie listening through the door, through glass in the door. I heard it about time one of you lunkhead said it. George and his father are at the table. Pa? George and his father are at the table. I'm gonna miss old Annie, Pop. I'm gonna miss old Annie. I'm gonna get dressed and go over to Harry's party. You have a good time, son. Wipe to the high school gym at night. At one end of the room, an orchestra is playing. George wins, wins his way through, winds his way through the dancing couples towards the supper table. He and Harry are carrying plates and pies. Here we are. Several of the boys take the plates from him. George looks at them, feeling very grown up and out of place. You know my kid brother, George. I'm gonna put him to college. Sam Wainwright comes in behind Harry, waggles his hands at his ears and he's, as he talks. Here comes George, hello, hee-haw. <laughs> George swings around, delighted to hear a familiar voice including Sam and Marty Hatch. Sam is assured and breezy, wearing a very collegiate clothes. Oh, Sam Wainwright, how are you? When did you get here? All this afternoon. I thought I'd give the kids a treat. You're an old college graduate now? Yeah, old, old, old Joe Collett Wainwright, they call me. Huh? Well, freshman, looks like you're going to make it after all. Yep. Sam sees Harry and leaves George in the middle of a gesture. Harry, you're the guy I want to see. Coach has heard all about you. He has? Yeah, he's followed every game and his mouth is watering. He wants me to find out if you're going to come along with us. Well, I got to make some dough first. Well, you better make it fast. We need great ends like you, not broken down old guys like this one. George and Sam wiggle their fingers at their ears, saluting each other. 
Yee-haw! Yee-haw! <laughs> and then the school principal comes over to George. George, welcome back. Hello, Mr. Partridge. How are you? Putting a pool under this floor was a great idea. Saved us another building. Now, Harry, Sam, have a lot of fun. There's lots of stuff to eat and drink and lots of pretty girls around. Violet Bick comes into the scene and turns to face George. She's waving her dance program at him. Hey, George! Hello, Violet. Hello, what am I, bid? Merdy Hatch enters the scene. Marty? George! Hiya, Marty. Well, it's old home week. Do me a favor, will you, George? What's that? Well, you remember my kid sister, Mary? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mummy wants you, Marty. Mama wants you, Marty. Remember? <laughs> That's with her. Oh, yeah. Oh, me? Oh, well, I, I feel funny enough already with all these, all these kids. Come on, be sports. Just dance with her one time and you'll give her the thrill of your life. Oh, go on. Hey, sis? Well, excuse me, Violet. Don't be long, Marty. I don't want to be a wet nurse for... He stops suddenly as he sees Mary staring at her, close up on Mary Hatch. She's standing talking to one of the boys, Freddie, a glass of punch in her hand. For the first time, she's wearing an evening gown, and she has gained assurance from the admiration of a boy with her. She turns around, and for the first time, she sees George. For the second, she loses her poise, staring at him. The next thing I know, some guy came up and tripped me. (laughs) Oh, that's the reason why I came in fourth. If it hadn't been for that. Close shot on George, staring at Mary. That race would have been a cinch. I tried to find out who was it was later. (laughs) Close up on Mary, still staring at George and smiling. But I couldn't figure it out. Nobody had tell me whoever it was because they'd be sword. Well, they know. Medium close-up, Mary and Freddie. Marty comes into the scene, followed by George. What kind of? You remember George. This is Mary. Well, I'll be seeing you. Well... Well, well. Now to get back to my story, see? Mary hands her punch cup to Freddie, and she and George start dancing. Hey, this is my dance. Oh, why don't you stop annoying people? Well, I'm sorry. Hey! Following George and Mary as they dance. Well, hello. Hello. (laughs) You look at me as if you don't know me. Well, I don't. You've passed me on the street almost every day. Me? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-uh. That was a little girl named Mary Hatch. That wasn't you. A whistle is heard off screen and the music stops. Close shot on Harry is the orchestra on the orchestra platform, whistle in hand. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. The big Charleston contest, the prize, a genuine loving cup. Those not tapped by the judges will remain on the floor. Let's go! Close up on George and Mary. As the music starts, then couples begin dancing once more. They look at each other. I'm not very good at this. (laughs) Neither am I. Okay. What can we lose? 
They start their <laughs> Charleston. We see a series of shot of various couples doing their routines. Some good, some bad. Close up on Freddie, leaning against the railing around the dance floor, looking daggers at George. Mickey, a young punk who has one had had who has had one too many, is beside him. What's the matter, Othello? Jealous. <laughs> Did you know there's a swimming pool under this floor? And did you know that button behind you causes this floor to open up? And did you further know that George Bailey is dancing right over that crack? And I've got the key. Freddie needs no more. He takes the key from Mickey and turns the switch. The floor begins to part in the middle, each half sliding under the bleacher seats. Pandemonium starts. Dancers begin to scream as they try to get off. Some are so engrossed in the dancing that they continue at top speed. Teachers and elders start to scurry off. As the floor opens, it reveals an attractive lighted swimming pool. George and Mary are so busy dancing, they don't notice the floor opening. Spotlights concentrate on them. They mistake the screams for cheers. George and Mary are dancing. They're cheering us. We must be good. The crowd watching George and Mary dance. They move backwards until finally they reach the edge of the floor and fall into the pool below. A series of shots show George and Mary still trying to dance in the water. The crowd on the edge cheering them on. Some of the crowd leaps into the pool. The principal, trying to restore order, finally clasps his hands like a diver and leaps in himself. Fade out. Fade in on a tree-lined residential street at night. George and Mary. The night is warm and a bright moon. George is dressed in a jersey sweater and oversized football pants that keep wanting to come down. Mary's in an old white bathrobe. Each is carrying their wet clothes tied in a bundle that leaves a trail of dripping water. As they near the camera, we hear them singing. Oh, Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Sorry, can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight and dance by the light of the moon? Hot dog. Just like an organ. Beautiful. Amber moves with them as they proceed down the street. And I told Harry I thought I'd be bored to death. You should have seen the commotion in that locker room. I had to knock down three people to get this stuff we're wearing here. Here, let me hold that wet dress of yours. He takes the bundle of clothes from Mary. They stop and look at each other. <laughs> do I look as funny as you do? <laughs> I guess I'm not quite the football type. Ew. You look wonderful. You know, if it wasn't me talking, I'd say you were the prettiest girl in town. Well, why don't you say it? I don't know. Maybe I will say it. How old are you, anyway? Eighteen. 18. Why, it was only last year you were 17. Too young or too old? <laughs> oh, no, no, just right. Your age fits you. Yes, sir, you look a little older without your clothes on. Mary stops. George, to cover his embarrassment, talks quickly on. I, I mean without a dress. You you look older. I mean younger. You, you look just... In his confusion, George steps out of the end of the belt of steps on the end of the belt of Mary's bathrobe, which she's trailing along behind her. She gathers the robe around her. Hmm. Oh, uh, sir, my train, please. A pox upon me for a clumsy lout. He picks up the belt and throws it over her arm. Your, uh, your caboose, my lady. You may kiss my hand. 
Um, holding her hand, George moves in closer to Mary. Hey. Hey, Mary. Mary turns away from him, singing Buffalo Gals. As I was lumbering down the street. George looks after her, then picks up a rock from the street. Okay, then I'll throw a rock at the old Granville house. Oh, no, don't. I love that old house. A long shot of the old house. It's a weather-beaten, old-fashioned, two-story home that once was no doubt resplendent. No, no, you see, you make a wish, and then you try and break some glass. you got to be a pretty good shot nowadays, too. Close up on George and Mary. Oh, no, George, don't. It's full of romance, that old place. I'd like to live in it. In that place? Uh Uh-huh. I wouldn't live in it as a ghost. (laughs) Now watch, right on the second floor. George hurls the rock at the house. We hear the sound of a window breaking. Exterior front porch of the house, close shot. We see a grumpy old man in shirt sleeves in a rocking chair on the porch. He looks up as he hears the breaking glass. Exterior street, George and Mary. What did you wish, George? Well, not just one wish. A whole hat full, Mary. I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next year and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust off this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Italy. Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm going to come back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers 100 stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. As he talks, Mary's been listening intensely. She finally stoops down and picks up a rock, weighing it in her hand. Are you going to throw a rock? The deserted old house. Mary throws her rock and once more we hear the sound of a breaking glass. Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Mary looks at him provocatively, then turns and shuffles off down the street, singing as she goes. George hurries after her. Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? George joins her in singing as they proceed down the street. Can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight and dance by the light of the moon? What'd you wish when I threw that rock? Man on the porch of the house is listening to George and Mary. They've stopped walking and now they face each other. Oh no. Come on, tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You want the moon? Just say. The full moon is shining through the trees. Back on George and Mary. Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. And then what? Well, then you could swallow it and it'd all dissolve, see? And the moonbeam would shoot out your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Am I talking too much? The man on the porch, as George finishes talking, he jumps up out of his chair. Yes! Why don't you kiss her instead of just talking her to death? Back to George and Mary. How's that? Why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death? Want me to kiss her, huh? Ah, youth is wasted on the wrong people. 
As he speaks, the man leaves the porch and goes into his house, slamming the front door. Back on George and Mary. Hey, hey, hold on. Hey, mister, come on back out here and I'll show you some kissing that'll put hair back on your head. What are you... Mary runs off scene. George has been once has been once more standing on the belt of her bathrobe. And so as she goes, her robe comes off. Oh. <laughs> Mary. He drops his bundle of clothes and picks up Mary's robe. He cannot see her anymore. Okay, I give up. Where are you? Close up on the bush at the edge of the sidewalk. We see Mary's face peering out from the leaves. Over here in the hydrangea bushes. George walks towards the bush. Here you are. Catch. He's about to throw her the robe. Then a thought strikes him. Wait a minute. What am I doing? This is a very interesting situation. Uh, Please give me my robe. A man doesn't get in a situation like this every day. I'd like to have my robe. Not in Bedford Falls, anyway. Mary fat thrashes around in the bushes. We hear her say, Ouch! This requires a little thought here. George Bailey, give me my robe! I've heard about things like this, but I've never... Oh, shame on you. I'm going to tell your mother on you. Oh, my mother's way up the corner there. (laughs) I'll call the police. Ah, they're way downtown. They'd be on my side, too. I'm going to scream. Maybe I could sell tickets. Let's see. No, the point is, in order to get this robe, I got it. I'll make a deal with you, Mary. Headlights flash onto the scene and the old Bailey automobile drives in with Harry at the wheel and Uncle Billy beside him. George, George, come on quick, home quick. Your father's had a stroke. George throws Mary's robe over the bush and gets into the car. Mary, Mary, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I gotta go. Come on, George, let's hurry. Did you, did you get a doctor? Yes, Campbell's there now. Close up on the hydrangea bush. As the car drives off, Mary, now wearing the robe, rises up from the bush and follows the car with her eyes. Fade out. Fade in on the exterior of the Bailey Building and Loan, sign over at the entrance. Interior of the Building of building and Loan, close up on the directors' meeting. There are about 12 directors seated around a long table. They are the substantial citizens of Bedford Falls. Dr. Campbell, a lawyer, an insurance agent, a real estate salesman, etc. Prominently seated among them is Henry F. Potter, his goon beside his wheelchair. Uncle Billy and George are seated among the directors. The chairman of the board is Dr. Campbell. They have folders and papers before them on which they have been reporting. Before each of the directors, there are individual reports for them to study. I think that's all we'll need you for, George. I know you're anxious to make a train. I have a taxi waiting downstairs. I want the board to know that George gave up his trip to Europe to help straighten things out these past few months. Good luck to you at school, George. Thanks. Now we come to the real purpose of this meeting, to appoint a successor to our dear friend, Peter Bailey. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to get to my real purpose. Wait just a minute now. Wait for what? I claim this institution is not necessary to this town. Therefore, Mr. Chairman, I make a motion to dissolve this institution and turn its assets and liabilities over to the receiver. George, you hear what that buzzard... Mr. Chairman, it's too soon after Peter Bailey's death to discuss chloroforming the building and loan. 
Peter Bailey died three months ago. I second Mr. Potter's motion. Very well. In that case, I'll ask the two executive officers to withdraw. Dr. Campbell rises from his seat. George and Uncle Bailey start to collect their papers and leave the table. But before you go, I'm sure the whole board wishes to express the deep sorrow at the passing of Peter Bailey. Very much. It was his faith and devotion that are responsible for this organization. I'll go further than that. I'll say that to the public, Peter Bailey was the building and loan. Everyone looks at him surprised. Oh, that's fine, Potter, coming from you, considering that you probably drove him to his grave. Peter Bailey was not a businessman. That's what killed him. Oh, I don't mean any disrespect to him. God rest his soul. He was a man of high ideals, so-called, but ideals without common sense can ruin this town. Now, you take this loan here to Ernie Bishop. You know, that fellow that sits around all day on his brains in his taxi. You know, I happen to know the bank turned down this loan. But he comes here, and we're building him a house worth $5,000. Why? George is at the door of the office, holding his coat and papers, ready to leave. Well, I handled that, Mr. Potter. You have all the papers there. His salary, his insurance. I can personally vouch for his character. A friend of yours? Yes, sir. You see... If you shoot pool with some employee here, you can come and borrow money. What does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their heads with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... George puts down his coat and comes around to the table, incensed by what Potter is saying about his father. Just, just a minute, just a minute. Now hold on, Mr. Potter. You're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he never, why he ever started this cheap penny and building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was, why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't have enough, he didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me, but he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Why, here, you're all businessmen here. Doesn't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even ought to think of a decent home. Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? until they're so old and broken down that they do you know how long it takes a working man to save five thousand dollars just remember this mr potter that this rabble you're talking about they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community well it is live and die in a couple decent decent rooms and bath anyway my father didn't think so People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well you're talking what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about. I know. Well, I've said too much. I, 
You're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. Just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Mr. Potter. Come on, Uncle Billy. George leaves the room, followed by the jubilant Uncle Billy. Potter's face is grim with hatred. The frustrated old man remark was gall in his veins. Hogwash. I want my motion. He's interrupted by a babble of talk as the directors take up the argument. In the outer office of the building and loan, George, visibly shaken, is busy with his bag, his papers. He's worried about the outcome of the meeting. Dissolving the building and loan will alter his plans. Uncle Billy follows him around, chattering. Boy, oh boy, that was telling him, George, old boy. You shut his big mouth. You should have heard him. What happened? We heard a lot of yelling. Well, we're being voted out of business after 25 years. Easy come, easy go. Ah, here it is. Help wanted, female. Medium close shot on the doorway to the office. Ernie's in the doorway. You still want me to hang around, George? Back to George and the others. Yeah, I'll be right down. Hey, you'll miss your train. You're a week late for school already. Go on. I wonder what's going on in there. Oh, never mind. Don't worry about that. They're putting us out of business. So what? I can get another job. I'm only 55. 56. Go on. Go on. Hey, look, you gave up your boat trip. Now, you don't want to miss college, too, do you? Dr. Campbell comes running out all excited. George, George, they voted Potter down. They want to keep it going. Cousin Eustace, Cousin Tilly, and Uncle Billy cheer wildly. Dr. Campbell and George shake hands. Whoopee! But they've got one condition. Only one condition. Well, what's that? Well, that's the best part of it. They've appointed George here as executive secretary to, keep his, to take his father's place. Oh, no. But uh, Uncle Billy's... You can keep him on. That's all right. As secretary, you can hire anyone you like. Dr. Campbell, now let's get this thing straight. I'm leaving. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to school. This is my last chance. Uncle Billy here, he's your man. But, George, they'll vote with Potter otherwise. Dissolve. The same stars we saw in the opening sequence are now once more twinkling as we hear the voices from heaven. I know, I know. He didn't go. Right. Not only that, but he gave his school money to his brother Harry and sent him to college. Harry became a football star, made second team All-American. Yes, but what happened to George? Exterior railway station, day, four years later. There's There's characteristic activity. A number of people waiting for the train. Uncle Billy's seated on the baggage, wa- baggage wagon, eating peanuts as George paces up and down in front of him. George got four years older, waiting for Harry to come back and take over the building and loan. There are plenty of jobs around for somebody that likes to travel. Look at this. There. Venezuela oil fields. Wanted man with construction experience. Here's the Yukon right here. Wanted man with engineering experience. The whistle of the approaching train is heard. Uh, There she blows. You know what the three most exciting sounds in the world are? 
Uh-huh. Breakfast is served. Lunch is served. Dinner. No, 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 no. Anchor chains, plane motors, and train whistles. Peanut? Wipe to train. Medium shot. The train comes to a stop and Harry is among the first to get off, followed by an attractive girl about the same age as he is. George rushes into the shot as the brothers embrace. There's the professor now. Old Professor Pi Beta Kappa Bailey, All-American. Well, if it isn't old George Geographic Explorer Bailey. What, no husky dogs, no sled? Uncle Billy, you haven't changed a bit. Nobody ever changes around here, you know that. Oh, am I glad to see you. Say, where's Mother? She's home cooking the fatted calf. Come on, let's go. Oh, wait, uh, wait, wait a minute, minute. The group, including Ruth Dakin, this is a young lady who came off the train with Harry. In the excitement of greetings, she's been momentarily forgotten. She stands, smiling and waiting. Hello. Uh, how, how do you do? Ruth Dakin. Ruth Dakin Bailey, if you don't mind. George and Uncle Billy stare, astounded. Huh? Well... I wired you I had a surprise. Here she is. Meet the wife. George is thunderstruck. He takes Ruth's hand. Well, what do you know, wife? Well, how do you do? Congratulations. Congratulations. What am I doing? Kisses Ruth. Camera moves with them down the platform. Harry, why didn't you tell somebody? What's a pretty girl like you doing marrying this two-headed brother of mine? Well, I'll tell you, it's purely mercenary. My father offered him a job. George stops with a sinking feeling. Uncle Billy and Ruth continue out of shot. Harry stops with George. Oh, he gets you and a job. Well, Harry's cup runneth over. George, about that job... Ruth spoke out of turn. I never said I'd take it. You've been holding the bag here for four years, and, well, I won't let you down, George. I would like to... Oh, wait a minute. I forgot the bags. I'll be right back. He runs out of the shot, George watching him. George slowly moves after Uncle Billy and Ruth. He's thinking deeply. It was a surprise to me. This is the new Mrs. Bailey, my nephew's wife, old, old friend of the family. Oh, oh, of course. I've heard him speak of you. Now I want to tell you we're going to give the biggest party this town ever saw. Camera moves with George as he comes into the scene. George detaches herself from the group and Ruth detaches herself from the group and offers George some popcorn. Here, have some popcorn, George. George, George, George. That's all Harry ever talks about. Ruth, this... What about this job? Oh, well, my father owns a glass factory in Buffalo. He wants to get Harry started in the research business. Is it a good job? Oh, yes, very. Not much money, but but a good future, you know. Harry's a genius at research. My father fell in love with him. And you did, too. Ruth nods, smiling. Exterior front porch, Bailey House, night. Cousin Eustace is taking a photograph of the family group assembled on the porch. Flashbulbs go off and the group breaks up. The crowd enters the front door of the house, leaving George and Uncle Billy on the porch. Close shot of George and Uncle Bailey. The latter is tipsy. He feels very high. 
Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I feel so good I could spit in Pata's eye. I think I will. What what did you say, huh? Oh well, maybe I better go home. He looks around for his hat, which is on his head. Where is my hat? Where's my George takes the hat from Uncle Billy's head and hands it to him. Oh, thank you, George. Oh, which one is mine? <laughs> the middle one. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> George, old boy. Old boy. Now look. You'll point me in the right direction. Would you do that, George? Right down there. They descend the porch steps and George turns his uncle around and heads him down the street. Old building and loan, pal. Um, you, now you just turn this way and go right straight down. That way, huh? He staggers out of the scene, and as George turns away, we hear Uncle Billy singing the Wild Irish Rose. There's a crash of cans and bottles then. I'm all right. I'm all right. The sweetest flower that grows. George is standing at the garden gate. He takes some travel travel folders from his pocket, looks at them, and throws them away. He's obviously disturbed about the latest turn of events. His mother comes out of the house and kisses him. Hello, Mom. That's for nothing. How do you like her? She nods toward the house where Harry and Ruth are among a crowd of other couples are dancing to the music of a phonograph and you can be seen through the front door. Jeez, well. Well, it looks like she can keep Harry on his toes. Keep him out of Bedford Falls anyway. Did you know that Harry Hatch is back from school? Uh-huh. Came back three days ago. Hmm. She's a nice girl, Mary. Mm-hmm. Kind that will help you find the answers, George. Mm-hmm. Oh, stop that grunting. Mm. Can you give me one good reason why you shouldn't call on Mary? Sure. Sam Wainwright. Hmm? Yes, Sam's crazy about Mary. Well, she's not crazy about him. Well, how do you know? Did she discuss it with you? No. Well, then, how do you know? Well, I've got eyes, haven't I? Like, she lights up like a firefly whenever you're around. Oh. And besides, Sam Wainwright's away in New York, and you're here in Bedford Falls. And all's fair in love and war? Well, I don't know about war. Mother, you know, I can see right through you. Right back to your back collar button. Trying to get rid of me, huh? Mm-hmm. They can. <laughs> Mrs. Bailey puts George's hat on his head. Well, here's your hat. What's your hurry? All right, Mother. Old bit building and little, old building and lone pal. I think I'll go out and find a girl and do a little passionate necking. Oh, George. Now, if you'll just point me in the right direction, uh, this direction. As he leaves. Night, Mrs. Bailey. 
wiped at the main street of Bedford Falls, close shot on George, who's standing in the middle of the street, hands in his pockets. As a girl passes, he turns and watches her for a moment. He's obviously undecided as to what he wants to do. Exterior, Violet Vick's beauty shop. Violet is locking up for the night. A couple of men are crowded around her, each one bent on taking her out. There's laughter and kidding and pawing. She looks up and sees George standing there. Excuse me. Now, wait a minute. I think I've got a date, but, um, stick around, fellas, just in case, huh? We'll wait for you, baby. (laughs) Camera pans with Violet as she crosses the street to George. Meet him close up on George and Violet. Hello, Georgie Porgy. Hello, Vi. He looks her over. Violet takes her beauty shop seriously, and she's an eyeful. She senses the fact that George is far from immune to her attractions. She links her arm in his and continues on down the street with him. Close moving shot, George and Violet. What gives? Nothing. Where are you going? Oh, I'll probably end up down at the library. They stop walking and face one another. George, don't you ever just get tired of just reading about things? Her eyes are seductive and guileful as she looks up at him. She is silent for a moment, then blurts out. Yes. What are you doing tonight? Not a thing. Are you game, Vi? Let's make a night of it. Oh, I love that, Georgie. What will we do? Let's go out in the fields and take off our shoes and walk through the grass. Huh? Then we can go up to the falls. It's beautiful up there in the moonlight, and there's a green pool up there, and we can swim in it. Then we can climb Mount Bedford and smell the pines and watch the sunrise against the peaks, and we'll stay up there whole night, and everybody will be talking, and there'll be a terrific scandal. George, have you gone crazy? Walk in the grass in my bare feet. Why, it's ten miles up to Mount Bedford. You think just because you... By this time, a small crowd is collected to watch the above scene. Violet is furious and talking in a loud voice, and George is trying to quiet her. Finally. Okay, okay, just just forget about the whole thing. As George stalks off, the crowd breaks into laughter, and we wipe to the residential street at night. George is walking slowly past the hatch home. He stares meditatively at this simple dwelling, then he starts walking ahead. But after a few steps, he turns around and starts back. He walks past the house a few yards, turns, and starts back again. Interior bedroom window, hatch house night. Close shot on Mary is looking out the window, watching George walk back and forth. What are you doing? Picketing? George stops, startled, and looks up. Hello, Mary. I just happened to be passing by. Yeah, so I noticed. Have you made up your mind? How's that? Have you made up your mind? About what? About coming in. Your mother just phoned and said you were on your way over to pay me a visit. Exterior street. George looks surprised at this. My mother just called you? Well, how did she know? Didn't you tell her? I didn't tell anybody. I just went for a walk and I happened to be passing by. But Mary's disappeared from the window. What do you... Went for a walk, that's all. Interior hatch house. Mary's running down the stairs. I'll be downstairs, mother. All right, dear. 
Mary looks in a mirror at the bottom of the stairs and fixes her hair. She's plainly excited at George's visit, runs into the parlor and puts a sketch on an easel. Insert the sketch. It's a caricature of George throwing a lasso around the moon. Lettering on the drawing says, George lassoes the moon. Back to the shot of Mary running into the hall. She opens a phonograph and puts on a record of Buffalo Gals. Then she opens the front door and stands there waiting for George. Interior doorway. George is struggling with the gate. He finally kicks it open and starts slowly up the path towards Mary. Well, are you coming in or aren't you? Well, I'll come in for a minute, but I didn't tell anybody I was coming over here. Mary and George are in the entrance hall. When did you get back? When did you get back? Sorry, that's your line. When did you get back? Tuesday. <laughs> Where'd you get that dress? Do you like it? It's all right. I thought you'd go back to New York like Sam and, and Angie and the rest of them. I worked there for a couple of vacations, but I don't know. I guess I was homesick. Homesick? For Bedford Falls? Yes, and my family and... Oh, everything. Would you like to sit down? They go through the doorway into the parlor. All right, for a minute. I still can't understand it, though. You know, I didn't tell anybody I was coming here. Would you rather leave? No, I, I, I don't want to be rude. Well, then sit down. George sees the cartoon on the easel and bends down for a close look at it. Some joke, huh? Hmm. Close shot on George and Mary sitting on the divan. He's uncomfortable and she tries desperately to keep the conversation alive. Oh, I see. It still smells like pine needles in here. Thank you. There's silence for a moment. Then Mary joins in singing with the phonograph record, which has been playing all through the above scene. And dance by the light. <laughs> What's the matter? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he looks at his watch as though about to leave. Well, I, um... It was nice about your brother Harry and Ruth, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, that that's all right. Don't you like her? Well, of course I like her. She's a peach. <laughs> oh, it's just marriage in general you're not enthusiastic about, huh? Uh, no, marriage is all right for Harry and Marty and Sam and you. Mrs. Hatch is in a bathrobe on the stairs with her hair in curlers. She's leaning over the banister and she calls. Mary! Mary! Back in the parlor, George and Mary seated on the divan. Who's down there with you? It's George Bailey, mother. George Bailey? What's he want? I don't know. What do you want? Me? Not a thing. I just came in to get warm. He's making violent love to me, mother. George is aghast. You tell him to go right back home. And don't you leave this house either. Sam Wainwright has promised to call you from New York tonight. But your mother needn't... You, you know I didn't come here to... to, to, to what did you come uh, here for? I, I don't know. You tell me. You're supposed to be the one that has all the answers. You tell me. Why don't you go home? Well, that's where I'm going. I don't know why I came in here in the first place. And good night. As George leaves the room, the telephone in the hall starts ringing. Good night. Mary, Mary, 
The telephone, it's Sam. Back in the hall, Mary comes into the hall. I'll get it. As Mary comes into the hall, she stops by the phonograph, which is still playing Buffalo Gals, takes off the record with a jerk and smashes it against the machine. The phone is still ringing. Mary, he's waiting. Hello. As Mary picks up the phone, George comes in from the front porch. I forgot my hat. Well, hee-haw. Hello, Sam. How are you? Oh, great. Gee, it's good to hear your voice again. George has stopped, hat in hand, to hear the first greetings. Oh, well, that's awfully sweet of you, Sam. There's an old friend of yours here, George Bailey. You mean old Mossback George? Yes, old Mossback George. Hee-haw, put him on. Wait a minute, I'll call him. George! He doesn't want to speak to George, you idiot. He does so, he asked for him. George, Sam wants to speak to you. She hands the instrument to George. Hello, Sam. Interior of Sam's New York office. Sam is seated at his desk while a couple of his friends are nearby with highballs in their hands. Well, George Bailey-Ofsky. Hey, a fine pal you are. What are you trying to do? Steal my girl again? Back in the hatch hall, George and Mary. What do you mean? Nobody's trying to steal your girl. Here, here's Mary. No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to talk to both of you. Tell Mary to get on the extension. Here, you you take it. You tell him. Mother's on the extension. In the hallway, there's a close-up on Mrs. Hatch. As she hears this, she hastily hangs up the extension phone for which she on which she has been listening. Back to George and Mary. We can both hear. Come here. Mary takes the telephone from George and holds it so that, the, so that of necessity, George's cheek is almost against hers. He's very cautious, conscious of her proximity. We're listening, Sam. I have a big deal coming up that's going to make us all rich. George, you remember that night in Martini's Bar when you told me you read someplace about making plastics out of soybeans? Huh? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So- soybeans, yeah. Oh, Dad snapped up the idea. He's going to build a factory outside of Rochester. How do you like that? Mary is watching George interestedly. George is very conscious of her, close to him. Rochester? Why Rochester? Well, why not? Can you think of anything better? Oh, I don't know. Um, Why not here? You remember that old tool and machinery works. You you, to tell your father you can get that for a song. And all the labor he wants, too. Half the town was thrown out of work when they closed down. That's so. Well, I'll I'll tell him. Hey, that, that sounds great. Oh, Baby, I, I knew you come through. Now, here's the point. Mary, Mary, you, you're in on this too. Listen now. Have you got any money? Money? Yeah, well, a little. Well, now listen. I want you to put every cent you've got into our stock, you hear? And George, I may have a job for you. That is, unless you're still married to that broken down building and loan, this is the biggest thing since radio, and I'm letting you in on the ground floor. Oh, Mary, Mary. I'm, I'm here. Would you tell that guy I'm giving him the chance of a lifetime, you hear? The chance of a lifetime. As Mary listens, she turns to look at George, her lips almost on his lips. He says it's the chance of a lifetime. George can stand it no longer. He drops the phone with a crash, grabs Mary by the shoulders and shakes her. Mary begins to cry. Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastics. I don't want any ground floors and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do, and you're, and you're, 
He pulls her to him in a fierce embrace, too meant for each other to find themselves in tearful ecstasy. Mary. Mary. I... George. 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 <laughs> Mrs. Hatch is at the top of the stairs. She practically paints it where she's Wipe to the front hall of the Bailey home, day, several months later, close up as Cousin Tilly's face fills the screen as she cries. Here they come. Camera pulls back and we hear the sound of the wedding march. People are crowded into the rooms, family, friends, neighbors. There's a din of conversation. Mary and George appear at the top of the stairs in traveling clothes, with Mrs. Hatch red-eyed behind them. Mary throws her bouquet, which is caught by Violet. As they come out onto the porch, we see that it is raining. Nevertheless, Cousin Eustace has his camera equipment set up and is taking pictures of the group. George and Mary dodge through the rain and shower of rice getting into Ernie's taxi cab, which pulls away from the curb. Close shot of the porch of the Bailey home. Mrs. Bailey and Annie the maid. First Harry, now George. Annie, we're just two old maids now. You speak for yourself, Mrs. B. <laughs> Interior of Ernie's cab. Day. Close shot, George, Mary, and Ernie. Mary and George are in each other's arms. Neither of you two see a stranger around here. It's me. Hey, look. Somebody's driving this cab. Ernie reaches over and hands George a bottle of champagne done up in a gift wrapping. Bert, the cop, sent this over. He said to float away to happy land on the bubbles. Oh, look at this. Champagne. Good old Bert. By the way, where are you two going on this here now, honeymoon? Where are we going? Look at this. There's the kitty, Ernie. Here, come on. Count it, Mary. (laughs) I feel like a bootlegger's wife. (laughs) Look. (laughs) You know what we're going to do? We're going to shoot the works. A whole week in New York. A whole week in Bermuda. The highest hotels. The oldest champagne. The richest caviar. The hottest music. And the prettiest wife. Uh, That does it. Then what? Then what, honey? (laughs) After that, who cares? (laughs) That does it. Come here. The cab passes the bank and Ernie sees a crowd of people around the door. He stops the cab. Long shot of scurrying people under umbrellas swarming around the bank doors. Panic is in the air. Attendants are trying to close down. Several people come running past the cab. Close shot of George, Mary, and Ernie in the cab. Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank. George, I've never really seen one. It's got all the earmarks of a run. Hey, Ernie, if you got any money in the bank, uh, you better hurry. George, let's not stop. Let's go. George gets out of the cab and looks down the street. Just a minute, dear. Uh-oh. Please, let's not stop, George. I'll be back in a minute, Mary. George runs off up the street towards the building and loan. Exterior of the building and loan, close up on the sidewalk. An iron grill blocks the street entrance to the building and loan. It's been locked. A crowd of men and women are waiting around the grill. They are simply dressed people to whom their savings are a matter of life and death. George comes in with an assumed cheerful manner. The people look at him silently, half-shamefaced, but grimly determined on their rights. In their hearts, there is fear and panic. Hello, everybody. Um, Mrs. Thompson, how are you? Charlie, what's the matter here? 
Can you get in? No one answers. He quickly unlocks the grill door and pushes it open. Followed by the crowd, George runs upstairs and into the outer offices of the building alone. George is followed by the still silent people. Uncle Billy is standing in the doorway to his private office, taking a drink from a bottle. He motions to George to join him. What is this, Uncle Billy, a holiday? George. He points to George's office. George turns cheerfully back to the crowd. Come on, everybody. That's right. Just come in. Come in. Come in. George vaults over the counter. Now, look, why don't you all sit? Why don't you There are a lot of seats over there. Just, just. George, can I? You heard me make yourselves at home. George, can, can I see you a minute? The people ignore George and remain standing in front of the teller's window. They all have their passbooks out. George hurries into his office where Uncle Billy is waiting for him. In George's office, George and Uncle Billy. Why didn't you call me? I just did, but they said you left. This is a pickle, George. This is a pickle. All right, now, what happened? How did it start? How does anything like this ever start? All I know is the bank called our loan. When? About an hour ago. I had to hand over all our cash. All of it? Every cent of it. And it was still less than we owe. Holy mackerel. And then I got scared, George, and closed the doors. I... I... The whole town's gone crazy. The telephone rings. Uncle Billy picks it up. Yes, hello? George. It's Potter. Hello? Interior Potter's library, day. Potter is seated behind his desk, his goon alongside him. Standing in front of the desk is a distinguished-looking man, obviously the president of the bank. He's mopping his brow with his handkerchief. George, there is a rumor around town that you've closed your doors. Is that true? Oh, well, I'm very glad to hear that, George. Are you all right? Do you need any police? Interior George's office. Close-up of George and Uncle Billy. Police? What for? Interior Potter's office. Medium shot of Potter talking on the phone. Well, mobs get pretty ugly sometimes, you know, George. I'm going uh, all out to help in this crisis. I've just guaranteed the bank sufficient funds to meet their needs. They'll close up for a week and then reopen. George's office. Close of George and Uncle Billy. He just took over the bank. Back to Potter's office. Potter on the phone. I may lose a fortune, but I'm willing to guarantee your people too. Just tell them to bring their shares over here, and I will pay them 50 cents on the dollar. George and Uncle Billy. Uh, you never miss a trick, do you, Potter? Well, you're going to miss this one. George bangs the receiver down and turns to meet Uncle Billy's anxious look. Back in Potter's office, Potter on the phone. If you close your doors before 6 p.m., you will never reopen. He realizes George has hung up and clicks the phone furiously. Back in George's office, George and Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy? George, was it a nice wedding? Gosh, I wanted to be there and off mute. Yeah. He looks at the string on Uncle Billy's finger. 
You can take this one off now. An ominous sound of angry voices comes from the other room. George and Uncle Billy exit from George's office. In the outer office of the building and loan, more people have crowded around the counter. Their muttering stops as they stand silent and grim. There's a panic in their faces. Now, just remember that this thing isn't as black as it appears. As George speaks, sirens are heard, sirens are heard passing in the street below. The crowd turns to the windows, then back to George. I have some news for you, folks. I've just talked to old man Potter, and he's guaranteed cash payments at the bank. The bank's going to reopen next week. But George, I got my money here. Did he guarantee this place? Well, no, Charlie. I, I didn't even ask him. We don't need Potter over here. Mary and Ernie have come into the room during this scene. Mary stands watching silently. I'll take mine now. <clears throat> No, but you, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in, back in a safe. The money's not here. Your money's in Joe's house, right next to yours, and in the, in the Kennedy house, and, and Mrs. Macklin's house, and, and a hundred others. Why, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do? Foreclose on them? I got $242 in here, and $242 isn't going to break anybody. Medium close shot at another angle. George is handing him a slip of paper. Okay, Tom, all right. Here you are. You sign this, you'll get your money in 60 days. 60 days? Well, now that's what you, you agreed to when you bought your shares. There's a commotion at the outer doors. A man, Randall, comes in and makes his way up to Tom. Tom, is it Tom, did you get your money? No. Well, I did. The old man Potter would pay 50 cents on the dollar every share you got. 50 cents on the dollar? Yes, cash. Well, what do you say? Now, Tom, you have to stick to your original agreement. Now give us 60 days on this. Okay, Randall. He starts out. Are you going to go to Potter's? Better to get half than nothing. A few other people start for the door. The camera pans with George as he vaults over the counter quickly, speaking to the people. Uh, Tom, Tom, Randall. Now wait, now now listen, now listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets hold of this build, building and loan, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. He's already got charge of the bank. He's got the bus line. He's got the department stores and... And now he's after us. Why? Well, it's very simple. Because we're cutting in on his business. That's why. And because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. People are still trying to get out, but some of them have stood still listening to him. George has begun to make an impression on them. Joe, you lived in one of his houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken down shack? Here, Ed, you know, you know, you remember last year when things weren't going so well and you couldn't make your payments. You didn't lose your house, did you? D do you think Potter would have let you keep it? Can't you understand what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling. Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not. That's why. He's picking up some bargains. Now, we, can't get we can get through this thing, all right? We've got to stick together, though. 
We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? I've got doctor's bills to pay. I need cash. Can't feed my kids on paint. During this scene, Mary has come up behind the counter. Suddenly, as the people come once more, start moving towards the door, she holds up a roll of bills and calls out. How much do you need? George jumps over the counter and takes the money from Mary. Hey, I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over until the, bank, until the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? $242. Oh, Tom, just enough to tide you over until the bank reopens. I'll take $242. George rapidly starts to count the money. Tom throws his passbook on the counter. There you are. That'll close my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. Mary turns and slips through the crowd, followed by Ernie. George hands the $242 to Tom and speaks to Ed, the next in line. Okay, all right. Ed? Got $300 here, George. Uncle Billy takes out his wallet and takes out all the cash he's got. Ah, now, Ed. What'll it take till the bank reopens? What do you need? Well, I suppose $20. $20. Now you're talking. Fine. Thanks, Ed. All right, now, Mrs. Thompson, how much do you want? But it's your own money, George. Never mind about that. How much do you want? I can get along with 20 all right. $20. And I'll sign a paper. You don't have to sign anything. I know you'll pay it back when you can. That's okay. All right, Mrs. Davis. I have seventeen fifty. Seven. He kisses her. Bless your heart. Of course you can. You got fifty cents. Seven. Wipe to the outer office of the building and loan. Close shot on George, Uncle Billy, and Cousin Tilly are behind the counter, watching the minute hand of the clock on the wall as George counts off the seconds. Cousin Eustace is ready to close the door. We're going to make it, George. They'll never close us up today. Six, five, four, three, two, one, bingo! Cousin Eustace slams and locks the door and scurries around the counter to join the others. We made it. <laughs> Look. Look, we're still in business. We've still got two bucks left. Uncle Billy is taking a drink out of his bottle. Well, let's have some of that. Get some glasses, Cousin Tilly. We're a couple of financial wizards. Those Rockefellers. <laughs> Get a tray for these great, big, important simoleons. Oh, we'll save them for seed. A toast. They raise their glasses. A toast. A toast to Papa Dollar and to Mama Dollar. And if you want the old building alone to stay in business, you better have a family real quick, eh? I wish they were rabbits. I wish they were too. Okay, let's put them in the safe and see what happens. The four of them parade through the office. George puts the $2 in the safe. Close shot, close shot of group around the safe door as George comes out. Wedding cigars. <laughs> oh, 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 wedding. Holy mackerel. I'm married. 
Where's Mary? Mary? Poor Mary. Look, I've got a train to catch. Well, the train's gone. Wonder if Ernie's still here with his taxi cab. George rushes into the office to look out the window. George, there's a call for you. Look, will you get my wife on the phone? She's probably over at her mother's. Mrs. Bailey is on the phone. Interior George's office, medium close-up. George is thoroughly rattled. I don't want Mrs. Bailey. I want my wife, Mrs. Bailey. Oh, that's my wife. Here, here, I'll take it in here. Mary? Hello, listen, dear, I'm sorry. What? Come home? What home? 320 Sycamore? Well, that, what? Whose home is that? The Waldorf Hotel, huh? Wiped to the old Granville house, long medium shot. An old-fashioned run-down house, unpainted and warped by weather. It once had class, but has not been lived in for years. This is the house that George and Mary will live in from now on. The rain is pouring down. A faint glow of light shines out from the bottom windows. George hurries into the scene. He stops to make sure it is the right number before going up the stairs. Exterior side of the house. Close shot on Burton, a man working in the rain, sorting through travel posters. Hey, this is the company's posters and the company won't like this. How would you like to get a ticket next week? Haven't you any romance in you? Sure I have, but I got rid of it. Liver pills. Who wants to see liver pills on their honeymoon? What? They want romantic places, beautiful places. Places George wants to go. A sharp whistle is heard. Close shot of the window of the house. Ernie's leaning from the window. Hey, Bert, here he comes. Come on, we gotta get up this up. It's coming. Who? The groom, idiot. Come on, get that ladder. What are they, ducks? The side porch of the house. Bert and the man are putting up travel posters to cover up the broken windows. Get that ladder up here. All right, all right. Hurry up. Hurry up. Hurry up. <laughs> I'm hurrying. George is approaching the front door of the house on which a sign is hanging, bridal suite. Ernie looks out through the curtain covering the broken glass of the front door. Hiya. Good evening, sir. Ernie opens the door, revealing himself as the handmade butler. This has been accomplished by rolling up his pants and putting on an old coachman's hat. George enters. Entree, monsieur. Entree. Interior of the Granville house, night. Close-up shot as George enters. The house is carpetless, empty. The rain and wind cause, fun, cause funny noises upstairs. A huge fire is burning in the fireplace. Near the fireplace, a collection of packing boxes are heaped together in the shape of a small table and covered with a checkered oilcloth. It is set for two. A bucket with ice and champagne bottles sits on the table as well as a bowl of caviar. The two small chickens are impaled on a spit over the fire. A phonograph is playing on a box and a string from the phonograph is is turning the chickens on a spit. The phonograph is playing Song of the Islands. Mary is standing near the fireplace, looking as pretty as any bride ever looked. She's smiling at George, who's been slowly taking in the whole setup. Through a door, he sees the end of a cheap bed, over the back of which he sees a pair of pajamas and a nightie. Ernie exits and closes the door. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. Well, I'll be. Mary, Mary, where did you? They rush into each other's arms and hold each other in ecstasy. 
Exterior side of the house, close shot and Bert and Ernie standing in the pouring rain, they start singing, I love you truly. Interior house night, close shot on George and Mary, they remain embraced. Remember the night we broke the windows in this old house? This is what I wished for. Darling, you're wonderful. Exterior side of the house, close on Bert and Ernie. They finish their song and Ernie kisses Bert on the forehead. Bert slams Ernie's hat on his head. Fade out. Fade in, exterior of Slum, Slum Street, Bedford Falls. Day, two years later. Medium close shot. In front of one of the miserable shacks that line the street are two vehicles. One of them is George Bailey's rickety car, and the other is an even more rickety truck piled high with household goods. The Martini family is moving. The family consists of Martini, his wife, and four kids of various ages, from two to ten. George and Mary are helping the Martinis move. About a dozen neighbors crowd around. Martini and George, assisted by three of the Martini children, are carrying out the last of the furniture. As they emerge from the house, one of the neighbors, Schultz, calls out. Martini, you rented a new house? Rent? You hear what you say, Mr. Bailey? Oh, what's that? I own the house. Me, Giuseppe Martini. I own my own house. No more we live like pigs in this potter's field. Hurry, Maria. Yes. Come on. Bring the baby. I'll bring the kids in the car. Oh, well, thank you, Mr. Bailey. Mary gets in the front seat of the car with the baby in her arms. All right, kids. Here, get in here. Now, get right up on the seat there. Get the... Get the goat. The family goat gets in the back seat with the three kids. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> All in. The rickety caravan starts off down the street to the cheers of the neighbors. Wipe to Bailey Park, exterior. A sign hanging on from a tree says, welcome to Bailey Park. Camera pans to follow George's car and the old truck laden with furniture as they pass. We hear Martini's voice singing, O Sole Mio. Bailey Park is a dis district of a small new houses, not all alike, but each individual. New lawns here and there and young trees. It is the promise that built up being a pleasant, small, little middle-class section. White to Martini's new house. Medium close shot on George and Mary as on the porch of the new house with the Martinis lined up before them. Mr. and Mrs. Martini, welcome home. The Martinis cross themselves. Exterior Bailey Park day. Close shot on Sam Wainwright is standing in front of his big black town car. Sam is the epitome of success, up-and-coming businessman. His wife in the car is very attractive, sophisticated-looking lady, dripping with furs and jewels. Sam is watching George across the street. That old George. He's always making a speech. Yeehaw! <laughs> Exterior of the new house. Close shot on George and Mary on the porch. Sam Wainwright. Oh, who cares? He gives Mr. Mrs. Martini a loaf of bread. Bread, that this house may never know hunger. Mrs. Martini crosses herself. She, Mary hands her some salt. Salt, that life may always have flavor. George hands a bottle to Martini. And wine, that joy and prosperity may reign forever. Enter the Martini Castle. The Martinis cross themselves, shaking hands all around. The kids enter with screams of delight. Mrs. Martini kisses Mary. Interior Potter's office in the bank. Day. 
close shot on Potter seated in his wheelchair in his, at his desk with his goon beside him. His rent collector, Reinman, is talking, pointing to the map spread out on the desk. Look, Mr. Potter, there's no skin off my nose. I'm just your little rent collector, but you can laugh off this Bailey Park anymore. Look at it! <laughs> A buzzer is heard and Potter snaps on the dictaphone on his desk. Mm, Congressman Blatz is here to see you! Uh, tell the congressman to wait. Go on. Fifteen years ago, half a dozen houses stuck here and there. There's an old cemetery, squirrels, buttercups, daisies, used to hunt rabbits there myself. Look at it today. Dozens of the prettiest little homes you ever saw. Ninety percent owned by suckers who used to pay rent to you. Your potter's field, my dear Mr. Employer, is becoming just that. There are the local yokels making with the David and Goliath wisecracks. Oh, they are, are they? Even though they know the Baileys haven't made a dime out of it? You know very well why. The Baileys were all chumps. Every one of these homes is worth twice what it costs to put in the building and loan to build. If I were you, Mr. Potter... Well, you are not me. As I say, it's no skin off my nose, but... One of these days, this bright young man is going to be asking George Bailey for a job. Reinemann exits. The Bailey family has been a boil on my neck long enough. He switch, flips the switch on the dictaphone. Yes, sir? Come in here. Exterior street in Bailey Park. Close shot on George and Mary talking to Sam Wainwright, Sam Wainwright in front of the latter's car. His wife Jane is now out of the car. We just stopped in town to take a look at the new factory, and then we're going to drive on down to Florida. Oh. Why don't you have your friends join us? Why, sure. Hey, why don't you kids drive down with us, huh? Oh, I'm afraid I couldn't get away, Sam. So I got the nose of the old grindstone, eh? Jane, I offered to let George in on the ground floor in plastics, and he turned me down cold. Oh, now, don't rub it in. I'm not rubbing in. Well, I guess we better run along. There's handshaking all around as Sam and Jane get into their car. Awfully glad to have met you, Mary. Nice meeting you. Goodbye. Goodbye, George. So long, George. See you in the funny papers. Goodbye, Sam. Have fun. Thanks for dropping around. To Florida. Yeehaw! Yeehaw! big black limousine glides away, leaving George standing with his arm around Mary, gazing broodingly after it. They slowly walk over to George's old car and look at it silently. Wipe to Potter's office day, close shot on Potter. He's lighting a big cigar, which he has just given, which he has just given George. The goon is beside Potter's chair, as usual. Thank you. Quite a cigar, Mr. Potter. You like it, I'll send you a box. Well, I, I suppose I'll find out sooner or later. But just exactly what did you want to see me about? <laughs> George, now that's just what I like so much about you. George, I'm an old man, and most people hate me. But I don't like them either, so that makes it all even. You know just as well as I do that I run practically everything in this town, but the Bailey Building and Loan. You know also that for a number of years I've been trying to get control of it, or kill it, but I haven't been able to do it. You have been stopping me. In fact, you have beaten me, George, and as anyone in this county could tell you, that takes some doing. 
You and I were the only ones that kept our heads. You saved the building and loan, and I saved all the rest. Yes, well, most people say you stole all the rest. The envious ones say that, George. The suckers. Now, I have stated my side very frankly. Now, let's look at your side. Young man, 27, 28, married, making, say, 40 a week. 45. 45. 45. Out of which, after supporting your mother and paying your bills, you're able to keep, say, 10 if you skimp child or two comes along and you won't be able to save that 10. Now, if this young man of 28 was a common, ordinary yokel, I'd say he was doing fine. But George Bailey is not a common, ordinary yokel. He's an intelligent, smart, ambitious young man who hates his job, who hates the building and loan almost as much as I do. A young man who's been doing, dying to get out on his own ever since he was born. A young man the smartest one of the crowd, mind you. A young man who has to sit by and watch his friends go places because he's trapped. Yes, sir, trapped into frittering his life away, playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. Do I paint a correct picture or do I exaggerate? Now what's your point, Mr. Potter? My point, my point is I want to hire you. Hire me. I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. George drops his cigar on his lap. He nervously brushes off the sparks from his clothes. 20, $20,000 a year. No, you wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town. Buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while to Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, George? Would I? You're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? <laughs> you know, this is me. You remember me? George Bailey? Oh, yes, George Bailey, whose ship has just come in, providing he has brains enough to climb aboard. Well, what about the building and loan? Oh, confound it, man. Are you afraid of success? I'm offering you a three-year contract at $20,000 a year starting today. Is it a deal, or isn't it? Well, Mr. Potter, I, 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 I know I had a jump at the chance, but I, I just, I wonder if it would be possible for you to give me 24 hours to think it over? Sure, sure, sure. You go home and talk about it with your wife. I'd like to do that. In the meantime, I'll draw up the papers. All right, sir. Okay, George. Okay, Mr. Potter. As they shake hands, George feels a physical revulsion. Potter's hand feels like cold mackerel to him. In that moment of physical contact, he knows he could never be associated with this man. George drops his hand with a shudder. He peers intently into Potter's face. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute here. I don't have to talk to anybody. I, I know right now, and the answer is no, 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 God dang it. Uh, you sit here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the, 
in the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you're nothing but a scurvy little spider. You. He turns and shouts, shouts at the goon, impassive as ever, beside Potter's wheelchair. Then that goes for you, too. As George opens the office door to exit, he shouts at Mr. Potter's secretary in the outer office. And it goes for you, too. Wipe to the bedroom of George and Mary's house. Close shot on George as he enters the bedroom. The room is modestly furnished with just a cheap bed, a chair or two, and a dresser. Mary is asleep in the bed. As George comes in, his head is filled with many confusing thoughts relating to the incidents of in the past life. Who wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town? Buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, going to New York on a business trip a couple times a year, maybe to Europe once in a while? George takes, his off, takes off his hat and coat and moves over to the dresser and stares at his reflection in the mirror. gonna do tomorrow and the next day and next year and the year after that i'm shaking the dust off this crummy little town off my feet and i'm gonna see the world and i'm gonna build things i'm gonna build air airfields i'm gonna build skyscrapers a hundred stories high i'm gonna build a bridge a mile long while the above thoughts are passing through george's head his attention is caught by a picture on the wall near the dresser it's a sketch of George lassoing the moon, and when we first saw in Mary's living room, the lettering reads, George lassoes the moon. What is it you want, Mary? You want the moon? If you do, just say the word. I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down for you. Mary's now awake and starts singing their theme song. Buffalo gals, won't you come out tonight? Won't you come out tonight? Won't you come out tonight? George crosses over and sits on the edge of the bed. Hi. Hi. Mary Hatch, why in the world did you ever marry a guy like me? To keep from being an old maid. You could have married Sam Wainwright or anyone else in this town. I didn't want to marry anybody else in town. I want oh. my baby to look like you. You didn't even have a honeymoon. I promised you... Uh, you what? You what? My baby. You mean... Mary, you own a nest? George Bailey Lasso's stork. <laughs> <laughs> Lasso's the stork? You, what do you... What, what is it, a boy or girl? Mary nods her head happily. Fade out. Fade in on a montage sequence. Over the following series of shots, we hear the voices of Joseph and Clarence in heaven. Exterior Main Street, Bedford Falls. George is crossing the street, heading for the offices of the building and loan. You've probably guessed already that George never leaves Bedford Falls. No. Interior hospital day. Nurse holding a newborn baby. Mary had her baby, a boy. In the sitting room, Mary is on the floor playing with her baby, a little boy is in a playpen nearby. Then she had another one, a girl. In the Granville house, Mary is busy hanging wallpaper and painting the old place. Day after day, she worked away remaking the old Granville house into a home. George has just come into the hall. He's obviously tired and discouraged as he starts up the stairs. The knob on the banister comes off in his hand. Night after night, George came back late from the office. Potter was bearing down hard. 
wiped to recruiting grounds day, a group of men obviously just drafted marching along in a camp. Then came a war. Red Cross workroom, close shot of Mrs. Bailey and other women in Red Cross uniforms busily sewing. Ma Bailey and Mrs. Hatch joined the Red Cross and sewed. Exterior train in the railway station, Mary with a portable USO pushcart is serving coffee and donuts to men leading from the train. Mary had two more babies, but still found time to run the USO. Interior factory day, close shot on Sam Wainwright showing set of blueprints to two army officers. Sam Wainwright made a fortune in plastic hoods for planes. Interior factory, Potter is wheeled in towards a long table around which several men are seated. Potter became head of the draft board. 1A, 1A, 1A. Exterior street, Bedford Falls. Gower and Uncle Billy are conducting a bond rally from the top of the army tank. Gower and Uncle Billy sold war bonds. Exterior battlefield, night. Bert in uniform moving cautiously with fixed bayonet, smoke and flashes of gunfire in the background. Bert, the cop was wounded in North Africa, got the silver star. Exterior, long shot, hundreds of planes flying overhead with parachutes dropping from them. Ernie, the taxi driver, parachuted into France. Remagen Bridge over the Rhine, day. Marty in the foreground, beckoning to the soldiers to come on. Marty helped capture the Remagen Bridge. Ready room on aircraft carrier, night. Harry is fastening the helmet of his flying clothes. He waves as he exits through the door. Harry. Harry Bailey topped them all. A Navy flyer. He shot down 15 planes. Exterior ocean from deck of carrier. A flaming plane crashes into the sea. Two of them as they were about to crash into a transport full of soldiers. Yes, but George. Interior ration office day. Close shot on George behind the counter. He's trying to quiet a crowd of people all clamoring for more ration points. George. For account of his ear, George George fought the Battle of Bedford Falls. Hold on, hold on, hold on now. Don't you know there's a war going on? Exterior street night. Close shot on George in the uniform of an air raid warden. He's patrolling his beat. Air raid warden. Exterior house, night, man beside a lighted window pulls down the shade as George blows his whistle. Exterior street, day, close shot on George who's helping load his, load his old car with scrap paper. Paper drives. Exterior dump, day, wheelbarrow full of junk being dumped onto a pile. Scrap drives. Exterior street, medium shot, children wheeling, wheeling old tires. Rubber drives. Interior church, day, medium shot of people pl- praying in church. Like everybody else on VE Day, he wept and prayed. Exterior church, another angle, people entering the church. On VJ Day, he wept and prayed again. Joseph, now show him what happened today. Yep. Yes, sir. Exterior Bedford Falls Street, winter day. George is walking along a sidewalk reading a newspaper. It is a raw, gusty day, and his overcoat and muffler flap in the breeze. Draped around one arm is a large Christmas wreath. Another, Under his other arm are several more copies of the paper. This morning, day before Christmas, about 10 a.m., Bedford Falls time. George comes to where Ernie, the taxi driver, is standing on the sidewalk. Hey, Ernie, look at that. 
He holds out the paper. Insert the paper, the front page of the paper, uh, the Bedford Falls Sentinel. The headline reads, President decorates Harry Bailey, local boy wins Congressional Medal of Honor. The subhead tells of a plan for a giant jubilee and parade to be followed by a banquet in honor of the commander Harry Bailey, USN, on his way home from Washington after receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor. There's a large picture of President Truman pinning the coveted medal on Harry's bosom in the midst of dignitaries. A picture of the transport which Harry saved, practically the whole page is devoted to the story. Close shot on George and Ernie. Gonna snow again. Ah, what do you mean it's gonna snow? Look at the headlines. I know, I know, I, I know. I think it's marvelous. Gower comes running across the street from his drugstore and joins them. Commander Harry Bailey. Mr. Gower, look at this, the, the, the second page. Now, now look, this is for you. And this is for you, this is for you. See you again. Exterior street day, medium long shot. Uncle Billy is walking along the street, humming happily to himself. He sees some men decorating the courthouse with banners and bunting. There's a huge sign reading, Welcome home, Harry Bailey. Be sure you spell the name right. Interior, outer office building and lone day. Full shot. The offices are unchanged. Still small time and old fashioned. The same office force, albeit a few years older. Cousin Tilly and Cousin Eustace sit it, seated on a chair in the middle-aged man with a briefcase. The outer door opens and George enters. Extra, extra, read all about it. Cousin Tilly and Cousin Eustace are talking on the phone. George, George, it's Harry now. I'm long distance from Washington. Harry, what do you know about that? <laughs> he reversed the charges. It's okay, isn't it? Oh, what do you mean it's okay for a hero? Harry, no, oh, you old seven kinds of a son of a gun. Congratulations. How's mother standing it? She did. What do you know? Mother had lunch with the president's wife. Wait till Martha hears about this. What did they have to eat? What, what, what did they have to eat? Harry, you should see what they're cooking up in the town for you. Oh, are they? The Navy's going to fly mother home this afternoon. In a plane? What? Uncle Billy? Has, has Uncle Billy come in yet? No, he stopped at the bank first. Oh, yeah, he's not here right now, Harry. Cousin Eustace has turned away from George and caught a glimpse of the man waiting in the chair. This is Carter, the bank examiner, come from his annual, for his annual audit of the books of the building and loan. But look. George. Now tell me about it. George, that man's here again. No, uh, what man? Ba bank examiner. Oh, uh, talk to Eustace a minute, will you? I'll, I'll be right back. He gives the phone to Eustace, puts down his wreath, and goes to Carter. Close shot on George and Carter. They shake hands. Good morning, sir. Man, a few words. I like that. Uh. Carter, bank examiner, pardon. Mr. Carter, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We're all excited around here. My brother just got the Congressional Medal of Honor. The president just decorated him. Well, I guess they do those things. Well, I trust you had a good year. 
good year. Well, between you and me, Mr. Carter, we're broke. Yeah, very funny. Well, now huh. that. Come right in here, Mr. Carter. Although I shouldn't wonder when you okay reverse charges on personal long distance calls. George, shall we hang up? Uh, no, no, he just wants to talk to Uncle Billy. You just hold on. Now, if you'll cooperate, I'd like to finish with you by tonight. I want to spend Christmas in Elmira with my family. I don't blame you at all, Mr. Carter. Just step right in here, we'll fix you up. Interior bank day, close shot on Uncle Billy filling out a deposit slip at one of the desks. December 24th. Takes a thick envelope from his inside pocket and thumbs through the bills it contains. It is evidently a large sum of money. Thousand. Medium shot of the door to the street. Potter is being wheeled in by his goon. Various bank officials run over to greet him. He's reading a newspaper. Uncle Billy has finished filling out his slip and comes over to taunt Potter, the envelope containing the money in his hand. Oh, good morning, Mr. Potter. What's the news? He grabs the paper from Potter's hand. Uh, well, Harry Bailey wins Congressional Medal. That couldn't be one of the Bailey boys. You just can't keep those Baileys down now, can you, Mr. Potter? How does Slacker George feel about that? Very jealous, very jealous. He only lost three buttons off his vest. Of course, Slacker George would have gotten two of those medals if he had gone. Bad year. Yes. After all, Potter, some people like George had to stay home. Not every heel was in Germany and Japan. Uncle Billy folds Potter's paper over the envelope containing his money and flings his final taunt at the old man. In a cold rage, Potter grabs his paper and wheels off towards the office. Uncle Billy smiles triumphantly and goes towards deposit window with his deposit slip. Close shot of Uncle Billy and the bank teller at the window. Morning, Horace. Uncle Billy hands the bank book over. The teller opens it, starts to punch it with rubber stamps. Uh, I guess you forgot something. Huh? You forgot something. What? Well, aren't you going to make a deposit? Sure. Sure, sure, I am. Well, then, it's usually customary to bring the money with you. Oh, shucks. Uncle Billy searches through every pocket he has. Uh, I know I, I had... The teller, knowing the old man's vagaries, points to one of the numerous strings tied around his fingers. Uh, how about that one there? Hmm? Well, I, I... Interior Potter's office, day. Close shot on Potter, who's now behind his desk. He spreads the newspaper out in front of him, muttering as he does so. Bailey. He sees the envelope, looks inside at the money, then to his goon, indicating the office door. Take me back there. Hurry up. Come on, look sharp. Potter opens the door just a little and peers through into the bank. Interior bank close shot deposit slip desk. Uncle Billy looks around for the money envelope. It's not there. He looks puzzled, thinks hard, then a look of concern creeps into his eyes. He starts thumping his pockets with increasing panic and looks into the waste paper basket on the floor. We finally, he finally rushes through the door and out into the street. Interior Potter's office day. Close shot on Potter watching through the door. Take me back. 
The goon wheels him back to his desk. He's deep in thought with a crafty expression on his face. Exterior street day. Uncle Billy running across the street in the direction of the building and loan. Outer office of the building and loan. Close shot of George coming from room where he's just left the bank examiner. George? There. Just, just, uh... Make yourself at home, Mr. Carter. I'll, I'll get those books for you. He sees Violet Bick standing there. Oh, hello, Vi. George, can I see you for a second? <laughs> Why, of course you can. Come, come on in the office here. He hears a noise and sees Uncle Billy entering the office. Uh, un- Uncle Billy, talk to Harry. Yeah, he's on the telephone. George and Violet enter his private office. Uncle Billy comes hurrying in. Hurry, Uncle Billy, hurry. Long distance, Washington. Hey, here's Harry on the phone. Harry, your nephew, remember? Here he is. Uncle Billy picks up the phone and speaks distractedly without knowing what he is saying. Hello. Uh, yes, uh, Harry. Yes, everything. Uh, everything's fine. He hangs up agitatedly, muttering to himself as he goes into his own office. Cousin Tilly and Cousin Eustif look out, out, look after him, dumbfounded. Have my head examined. $8,000. It's got to be somewhere. Interior George's office, day. Close shot on George and Violet. George has finished writing something and is slipping the paper in into, an, into an envelope. Here you are. Character. If I had any character, I'd... It takes a lot of character to leave your hometown and start all over again. He pulls some money from his pocket and offers it to her. No, George, don't. Here, now, you're broke, aren't you? I know, but... What What do you want to do? Hawk your furs and, and that hat? Want to walk to New York? You know, they charge for meals and rent up there just the same as they do in Bedford Falls. Yeah, sure. It's a loan. That's my business. Building and loan. Besides, you'll get a job. Good luck to you. He looks at him, then says a strange thing. I'm glad I know you, George Bailey. She reaches up and kisses him on the cheek, leaving lipstick. George opens the door for her. Interior, outer office, day, close shot. As George and Violet come through the door, they are being watched by Cousin Tilly, Cousin Eustace, and the bank examiner, who's still waiting to go into the, go to work on the books. Say hello to New York for me. Yeah. Yeah, sure I will. Now, let's hear from you. Violet sees the lipstick on George's cheek and dabs at it with her handkerchief. What's the matter? Merry Christmas, bye. Merry Christmas, George. She exits. Mr. Bailey. Oh, Mr. Carter, I'm sorry. I'll I'll be right with you. Uncle Billion? Yes, he's in his office. Doorway to Uncle Billy's office. Close shot as George opens the door. He sees Uncle Billy frantically looking for the missing envelope. The office is in a is in a mess. Drawers are opened, papers scattered on the floor and on the desk. Okay. What's going on? The bank examiner's here, and I gotta... He's here? Yeah, yeah, he wants the accounts payable. George stops short, suddenly aware of the tragic old eyes looking up at him. What's the matter with you? Uncle Billy gestures nervously for George to come in. He does so and closes the door. 
outer office day, Cousin Tilly is at her switchboard and Cousin Eustace standing beside her. Carter is still waiting in the doorway to his office. Suddenly the door opens and George comes striding out. He goes directly to the safe and starts searching. He doesn't find any money. Then he goes to the cash drawer in the counter and looks through it. Eustace? Yeah? Come here a minute. Cousin Eustace runs over to George. Did you see Uncle Billy with any cash last night? He had it on his desk counting it before he closed up. Exterior Main Street, Main Street of Bedford Falls. Uncle Billy and George are retracing the former's steps through the snow, looking everywhere for the missing money. They pause for a moment on the sidewalk. Now look, did, did you buy anything? Nothing. Not even a stick of gum. All right, all right. Now, we'll go over every step you took since you left the house. This way. They continue on down the street on their search. Exterior window of Potter's office in the in the bank. Day. Close shot of Potter peering through the slats of a Venetian blind, watching them as they go. Exterior Main Street, Bedford Falls. Moving shot as Uncle George and Uncle Billy continue their search. Wipe to the interior of Uncle Billy's living room. Close shot. A shabby, old-fashioned, gas-lit room which has been turned almost inside out and upside down in an effort to locate the missing money. Drawers of an old secretary have been pulled out and are on the floor. Every conceivable place which might have been used by Uncle Billy to put the money has been searched. George, his hair rumpled, is feverishly pursuing the search. Uncle Billy is seated behind the desk, his head in his hands. And did you put the envelope in your pocket? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. I don't want any maybe, Uncle Billy. We've got to find that money. I'm no good to you, George. I Listen to me. Do you have any secret hiding place here in the house? Someplace, someplace you could have put it. Uh, someplace to hide the money. I've been all over the whole house. Even in the rooms have been locked ever since I lost Laura. Uncle Billy, Billy stops, starts sobbing hysterically. George grabs him by the lapels and shakes him. Listen to me. Listen to me. Think. Think. I can't think anymore, George. I can't think anymore. It hurts. George jerks him to his feet and shakes him. Uncle Billy stands before him like a frisked criminal, all his pockets hanging out empty. George's eyes and manner are almost maniacal. Where's that money, you stupid, silly old fool? Where's the money? Do you realize what this means? It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. He throws Uncle Billy down into his chair and still shouts at him. That's what it want. What that's what it means. One of us is going to jail. Oh, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. George turns and heads for the door, kicking viciously at a wastebasket on the floor as he goes. Uncle Billy remains sobbing at the table, his head in his arms. Wipe to interior of George's living room. Night. Janie, aged eight, is seated at the piano playing "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," which she practices during the remainder of this scene. There's a Christmas tree all decorated near the fireplace. At a large table, Mary is bu- busy putting cellophane bows and decorations on gift packages. At a small table, Pete, aged nine, is seated with pad and pencil in the throes of composition. On the floor, Tommy, aged three, is playing with a toy vacuum cleaner. We hear the sound of a door open and close. Mary turns and sees George enter the hall, a slight powdering of snow on his head and shoulders. Interior hall, night. Close shot of George as he comes into the house. Hello, darling. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Daddy. How do you like it? George sneezes violently. (coughs) Bless you. Did you bring the wreath? You bring the Christmas wreath. What? What wreath? The Merry Christmas wreath for the window. 
No. I left it at the office. Is it snowing? Yeah, it just started. Well, where's your coat and hat? Left them at the office. Mary stares at him, aware that something unusual has happened. What's the matter? Nothing's the matter. Nothing's the matter. Everything's all right. Interior living room. Close shot on George, slumped in an armchair. He lifts Tommy onto his lap. Mary is helping Pete decorate the Christmas tree. Go on, Pete. You're a big boy. You can put the star up. Way up at the top. That's it. Fill in that little bare spot right there. That's it. Isn't it wonderful about Harry? We're famous, George. I'll bet I had 50 calls today about the parade, the banquet. Your mother's so excited. She... During this scene, George has been sitting in the chair, hugging Tommy to him and crying quietly. Mary realizes that something is seriously wrong and breaks off. Janie's thumping away at the piano. Must she keep playing that? I have to practice for the party tonight, Daddy. Mommy says we can stay up till midnight and sing Christmas carols. Can you sing, Daddy? Better hurry and shave. The, the families will be here soon. Families? I don't want the families over here. Mary leads him towards the kitchen. Come on out in the kitchen with me while I finish dinner. They exit with Tommy hanging onto George's coattails and pulling at him. Camera pans with them. Excuse me! Excuse me! Interior hallway, night. Close shot as they go towards the kitchen. Have a hectic day? Oh, yeah, another big red letter day for the Baileys. Daddy, the Browns next door have a new car. You should see it. Well, what's the matter with your car? Isn't it good enough for you? Yes, Daddy. Excuse me! Excuse me! Tommy's tugging at his coat. Interior kitchen, they come through the door. Excuse you for what? I burp! All right, darling, you're excused. Now go upstairs and see what little Zuzu wants. Tommy leaves and Mary turns to the stove. Zuzu? What's the matter with Zuzu? Oh, she's got a cold. She's in bed. Caught it coming home from school. They gave her a flower for a prize, and she didn't want to crush it, so she didn't button up her coat. What is it, a sore throat or what? Just a cold. The doctor says it's nothing serious. The doctor? Was the doctor here? Yes, I called him right away. He says it's nothing to worry about. Did she run in a temperature? What is it? Just a teensy one. 99.6, she'll be all right. George paces around the kitchen, worried. Gosh, it's this old house. I, I don't know why we we don't all have pneumonia. This drafty old barn might as well be living in a refrigerator. Why do we have to live here in the first place and stay around this measly, crummy old town? George, what's wrong? Wrong? Everything's wrong. You call this a happy family? Why do we have to have all these kids? Dad, how do you spell frankincense? I don't know. Ask your mother. George goes towards the doorway. Where are you going? Going up to see Zuzu. We hear his footsteps as he leaves. Mary looks after him, puzzled and concerned, then comes over to Pete. Told me to write a play for tonight. F-R-A-N-K-I-N. 
Interior hall night, medium close shot and George starts up the stairs. The knob on the banister comes off in his hand and for a moment he has an impulse to hurl it into the living room. Then he replaces the knob and goes up the stairs. Interior Zuzu's bedroom, full shot, the sound of Janie at the piano can be heard, the same monotonous rhythm over and over again. Zuzu, age six, is sitting up in her bed, the lamp burning beside her. She's holding a prized flower. George tiptoes in. Then, as he sees she's awake, he comes over, sitting on the edge of her bed. Hi, Daddy. Well, what happened to you? I want a flower. She starts to get out of bed. Oh, wait, now. Where do you think you're going? I want to give my flower a drink. All right, all right. Here, here. Give Daddy the flower. I'll, I'll give it a drink. She shakes her head and presses the flower to her. A few petals fall off. She picks them up. Look, Daddy, paste it. Yeah, all right, all right, now I'll, I'll paste this together. She hands him the fallen petals and the flower. He turns his back to Zuzu, pretending to be tinkering with the flower. He sticks the fallen petals into his watch pocket, rearranges the flower, and then turns back to Zuzu. There it is, good as new. Give the flower a drink. George puts the flower in a glass of water on the table beside her bed. Now, will you do something for me? Close up what? on George and Zuzu. They whisper. What? Will you try to get some sleep? I'm not sleepy. I want to look at my flower. I know, I know. But you just go to sleep then you can dream about it. It'll be a whole garden. It will? Uh-huh. She closes her eyes and relaxes on the bed. George pulls the covers over her. He bends down and his lips touch a tendril of the child's hair. Then he gets up and tiptoes out of the room. Interior living room. Janie is still pounding with grim determination at the piano. Pete is seated at the table writing. Tommy is playing with his toy vacuum cleaner. The telephone rings. Telephone! Into your living room, close shot. Mary comes in and picks up the phone. I'll cut it. Hello? Yes, this is Mrs. Bailey. George enters shot and stands listening to her. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Welch. I'm sure she'll be all right. The doctor says that she ought to be out of bed in time to have her Christmas dinner. Is that Zuzu's teacher? Yes. Let me speak to her. He snatches the phone from Mary. Hello? Hello, Mrs. Welch? This is George Bailey. I'm Zuzu's father. Say, what kind of a teacher are you anyway? What do you mean sending her home like that, half naked? Do you realize she's prob she'll probably end up with pneumonia on account of you? George! She puts a restraining hand on his arm. He shakes it off. She cannot know what George's tirade against Mrs. Welch is really a tirade against the world, against life itself, against God. Over the phone, we hear Mrs. Welch's voice sputtering with protest. Is this the sort of thing we pay taxes for, to, to have teachers like you? Silly, stupid, careless people who send our kids home without having clothes on? You know, maybe my kids aren't the best-dressed kids. Maybe they don't have any decent clothes. Mary succeeds in wrestling the phone from George's hand. That's stupid. Mary speaks quickly into the phone. Hello, Mrs. Welch. I want to apologize. Hello? Hello? She's hung up. I'll hang her up. But the telephone is suddenly alive with a powerful male voice calling. 
Now who do you think you are? George hears this and grabs the receiver from Mary. Wait a minute. Hello? Who's this? Oh, Mr. Welch. Okay, that's fine, Mr. Welch. Give me a chance to tell you what I really think of your wife. Mary once more tries to take the phone from him. George! Will you get out and let me handle this? Hello? Hello? What? Oh, you will, huh? Okay, Mr. Welch, anytime you think you're man enough. Hello? Any? But before we can think of an insult to top Mr. Welch's, we hear a click on the phone. No. He hangs up the receiver and turns toward the living room. His face is flushed and wet. Daddy, how do you spell hallelujah? How should I know? What do you think I am, a dictionary? He yells at Tommy, noisily playing with his vacuum cleaner. Tommy, stop that. Stop it. Janie is still practicing at the piano, monotonously. Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You've played it over and over and over again. Now stop it. Stop it. And here, your living room, close shot. The room has suddenly become ominously quiet, the only sound being George's labored breathing. George goes over to a corner of the room where his workshop is set up. A drawing table, several models models of modern buildings, bridges, etc., Savagely, he kicks over the models, picks up some books, and hurls them into the corner. Mary and the children watch, horrified. George looks around and sees them staring at him as if he were some unknown wild animal. The three children are crying. I'm sorry, Mary. Janie, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean... You go on and practice. Uh, Pete, I owe you an apology, too. I'm sorry. What do you want to know? Nothing, Daddy. Mary and the children stare at him, stunned by his furious outburst. There is silence in the room. Oh, what's the matter with everybody? Janie, go on. I told you to practice. Now go on, play. Janie breaks into sobs. (laughs) George, why must you torture the children? Why don't you... The sight of Mary and the children suffering is too much for George. Mary. He looks around him, then quickly goes out the front door of the house. Mary goes to the phone and picks it up. Bedford 247, please. Is Daddy in trouble? Can I pray for him? Yes, Janie. Pray very hard. Me too? You too, Tommy. Hello, Uncle Billy. Wipe to Potter's office in the bank, night, 8 p.m., Medium close-up as Potter is seated at his desk, his goon beside him. He's signing some papers. George is seated in a chair before the desk without a a hat or a coat, covered lightly with snow. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm in trouble, Mr. Potter. I I, I need help. Through some sort of accident, my, my company's short in their accounts. The bank examiner's up there today. I've got to raise $8,000 immediately. Oh, so that's what the reporters wanted to talk to you about. The reporters? Yes, they called me up from your building alone. Oh, there's a man over there from the DA's office, too. He's looking for you. Oh, please help me, Mr. Potter. Please help me. I, I Won't you please? Can't you see what it means to my family? I'll pay you any sort of bonus on the loan, any, any, any interest. If you still want the building alone, why, I, I... George... Could it possibly be there's a slight discrepancy in the books? Oh, no, sir. There's nothing wrong with the books. I've just misplaced $8,000. I can't find it anywhere. 
you misplaced $8,000. Yes, sir. Have you notified the police? No, sir. I didn't want the publicity. Harry's homecomings tomorrow. <laughs> They're going to believe that one. What have you been doing, George? Playing the market with the company's money? No, sir. No, sir, I haven't. Or what is it? A woman, then? You know, it's all over town that you've been giving money to Violet Bick. What? Not that it makes any difference to me, but why did you come to me? Why don't you go to Sam Wainwright and ask him for the money? I can't get a hold of him. He's, he's in Europe. Well, what about your other friends? They don't have that kind of money, Mr. Potter. You know that. You're the only one in town that can help me. I see. I've suddenly become quite important. What kind of security would I have, George? Have you got any stocks? No, sir. Bonds? Real estate? Collateral of any kind? I have some life insurance, a $15,000 policy. Yes. And how much is your equity in it? $500. Look at you. You used to be so cocky. You were going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you but a warped, frustrated young man? A miserable little clerks crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. You're worth more dead than alive. Why don't you go to the riffraff you love so much and ask them to let you have $8,000? You know why? Because they'd run you out of town on a rail. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you, George. Since the state examiner is still here, as a stockholder of the building alone, I'm going to swear out a warrant for your arrest. Misappropriation of funds, manipulation, malfeasance. George turns and starts out the office as Potter picks up the phone and dials. All right, George, go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. George is on the way out the door by now. Tamara moves closer to Potter. Bill, this is Potter. Exterior Main Street of Bedford Falls. Medium close shot as George comes out of the bank and into the falling snow. He crosses the street, tugs at the door of his old car, finally steps, out, steps over the door and drives off. Exterior Martini's Barn, night. An attractive little roadside tavern which re with the name Martini's and neon lights on the front wall. Interior Martini's Bar, close shot. The place is an Italian restaurant with bar. The bottles sparkle. There are Christmas greens and holly decorating the place. It has a warm, welcoming spirit, like Martini himself, who's welcoming new arrivals. The booths and the checkered cloth covered tables are full. There's an air of festivity and friendliness and more like a party than a public drinking place. George is seated at the bar. He has a great deal to drink, far more than he's accustomed to. Merry Christmas, glad you came. How about some of that spaghetti? We got to everything. During this, the camera moves closer to George. Nick, the bartender, is watching him solicitously. Seated on the other side of George is a burly individual drinking a glass of beer. George is mumbling. God. God, dear father in heaven, I'm not a praying man. But if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, God. You're right, George. Want something to take you home? 
George shakes his head. Martini comes over to his side. Why are you drink so much, my friend? Please go home, Mr. Bailey. This is Christmas Eve. The ugly man next to George who has been listening reacts sharply to the name Bailey. Bailey? What Bailey? This is Mr. George Bailey. Without any warning, the burly man throws a vicious punch at George, who goes down and out. Martini, Nick, and several others rush to pick him up. And the next time you talk to my wife like that, you'll get worse. She cried for an hour. It isn't enough. She slaves, teaching your stupid kids how to read and write, and you have to ball at her out. You will get out of here, Mr. Walsh. Mr. Welch reaches in his pocket for money. No, wait. I have to pay for my drink. Never mind the money. You get out of here quick. All right. You hit my best friend. Get out. Nick and Martini shove Welch out the door, then run back to help George to his feet. George's mouth is cut and bleeding. You're right, George. Who is that? He's gone. Don't worry. His name is Welch. He uh, don't come into my place no more. Oh. Welch, that's what I get for praying. The last of time he come in here. You hear that, Nick? Yeah, you bet. Where's my insurance policy? Oh. It's right here. It starts with oh, no, please uh, don't go out this way, Mr. Bailey. I'm all right. Nick and Martini try to stop him, but he shrugs them off. Oh, no, you don't feel so good. I'm all right. Please, don't go. Please. George opens the door and exits to the street. External residential street night. George's car comes along the empty street through the falling snow, suddenly swerves and crashes into a tree near the sidewalk of a house. George gets out to look at the damage and savagely kicks at the open door of the car, trying to shut it. The noise brings the owner of the house running out. What do you think you're doing? George stands unsteadily near the car, shaken by the accident. The front lights are broken and the fender is ripped. George stands dully looking at the damage. The owner comes up looking at his tree. He leans over to examine the damages. Now look what you did! My great-grandfather planted this tree! George staggers off down the street, paying no attention to the man. Hey, you! Hey, you! Come back here! You drunken fool! Get this car out of here! Exterior bridge over the river. George is crossing the approach to the bridge when a truck swings around the corner and nearly hits him. Hey, what's the matter with you? Look where you're going! The truck turns onto the bridge and George takes a narrow catwalk at the railing. Close shot on George was stopped by the railing at the center of the bridge. The snow is now falling hard. Exterior river night. Camera showing shooting down from George's angle to the water, dotted with floating ice passing under the bridge. Exterior bridge at the railing, close up on George as he stares down at the water, desperate, trying to make up his mind to act. He leans over, looking at the water, fascinated, glances furtively around him, hunches himself as though about to jump. From above, George, a body hurls past him and lands in the water with a loud splash. George looks down, horrified. Help! Help! George quickly takes off his coat and dives into the dives over the railing into the water. George comes up and sees the man flailing about in the water and camera pans with him as he swims towards the man. Help! 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 Exterior toll house on the bridge, night. 
The toll housekeeper, hearing the cries for help, comes running out of the bridge with a flashlight, which he shines on the two figures struggling in the water below. Exterior river. The man in the water is Clarence, the angel, whose voice we have heard speaking from heaven. George reaches him, grabs hold of him, and starts swimming for shore. Wipe to the toll house on the bridge. Medium shot as George Clarence and, Clarence and the toll keeper. George is seated before a wood-burning stove, before which he, his clothes are drying on a line. He's in long, under, long winter underwear. He's sipping a mug of hot coffee, staring at the stove, cold, gloomy, and drunk, ignoring Clarence and the toll keeper, preoccupied by his near suicide and his unsolved problems. Clarence is standing on the other side of the stove, putting on his undershirt. This is a ludicrous 17th century garment, which looks like a baby's nightshirt, with embroidered cuffs and collar and gathered at the, gathered at the neck with a drawstring. It falls below his knees. The toll keeper is seated against the wall, eyeing them suspiciously. Throughout the scene, he attempts to spit, but each time is stopped by another something amazing Clarence does or says. Clarence becomes aware that his garment is amazing, the toll keeper. I didn't have time to get some stylish underwear. My wife gave me this on my last birthday. I passed away in it. The toll keeper, about to spit, is stopped in the middle of it by this remark. Clarence, secretly trying to get George's attention, now picks up a copy of Tom Sawyer, which is hanging on the line, drying. He shakes the book. Tom Sawyer's drying out. You should read the new book Mark Twain's writing right now. The toll keeper stares at him incredulously. How'd you happen to fall in? Oh, I didn't fall in. I jumped in to save George. George looks Wait, what? To save me. Well, I did, didn't I? You didn't go through with it, did you? Go through with what? Suicide. George and the toll keeper react to this. It's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Where'd you come from? He leans forward to spit, but is stopped by Clarence's next statement. Heaven. I had to act quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you'd try to save me. And you did. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. The tollkeeper becomes increasingly nervous. George casually looks at the strange, smiling little man a second time. Very funny. Your, your lips bleeding, George. George's hand goes to his mouth. Yeah, I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, no, no. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How do you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I watched you growing up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? Oh, no. Well, who are you then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody, AS2. What, what's that, AS2? Angel, second class. The toolkeeper's chair slips out from under him with a crash. He's been leaning against the wall on it, tipped back on two legs. The toolkeeper rises and makes his way warily out the door. From his expression, he looks like he'll call the nearest cop. Cheerio, my good man. George rubs his head with his hand, too clear his mind. Um, oh, brother. Whoa. Wonder what martini put in those drinks. He looks up at Clarence, standing beside him. Hey, what's with you? Did, what did you say a minute ago? Why did you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. 
Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. $8,000. Yeah, just things like that. Now, how'd you know that? I told you, I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't won my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. I don't know whether I like it very much being seen around with an angel without any wings. Oh, I've got to earn them and you'll help me, won't you? Sure, sure, how? By letting me help you. Only one way you can help me. You don't happen to have 8,000 bucks on you, do you? Oh, no, no, we don't use money in heaven. Oh, that's right, I keep forgetting. Comes in pretty handy down here, bub. Oh. I found, it a li- I found out a little late. I'm worth more dead than alive. Now look, you mustn't talk like that. I won't get my wings with that attitude. You just don't know all you've done. If, you, if it hadn't been for you, then the town- Yeah, if it hadn't been for me, everybody would be a lot better off. My wife, my kids, and my friends. Look, little fellow, why don't you go off and haunt somebody else, won't you? No, you don't understand. I've got my job to do. Ah, shut up, will ya? Clarence is not getting far with George. He glances up, paces around the room thoughtfully. Well, this isn't going to be so easy. So, you still think killing yourself would make everyone feel happier, huh? Oh, I don't know. I guess you're right. I suppose it would have been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. You... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. What do you think? Yeah, that'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. You've never been born. As Clarence speaks this line, the snow stops falling outside the building. A strong wind springs up, which blows open the door to the shack. Clarence runs to close the door. He didn't have to make all that fuss about it. As Clarence speaks, George cocks his head curiously, favoring his deaf ear, more interested in his hearing than in what Clarence has said. What did you say? You've never been born. You don't exist. You haven't a care in the world. George feels his ear as Clarence talks. No worries, no obligations, no $8,000 to get, no Potter looking for you with the sheriff. Close up on George and Clarence, George indicates his bad ear. Say something else in that ear. Sure, you can hear out of it. Well, that's the doggondest thing. I, I haven't heard anything out of that ear since I was a kid. It must have been that jump in the cold water. Your lips stop bleeding too, George. George feels his lip, which shows no sign of the recent cut he received from Welch. He's now thoroughly confused. Huh, what do you know about that? What's happened? George looks around as though to get his bearings. It, it stopped snowing out, hasn't it? What's happening here? Come on, as soon as these clothes of ours are dry. Our clothes are dry. George feels the clothes on the line. What do you know about that? Stuff's hotter than I thought. Yeah, come on. Get your clothes on and we'll stroll up to my car and get on. 
They start dressing and George interrupts himself. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, y'all stroll, you fly. I can't fly, I haven't got any wings. Wow, you haven't got your wings, right, that's, uh, that's right. Exterior street, this is the same empty street where George's car swerved into the tree near the sidewalk. George and Clarence come into the shot and up to the spot where George has left his car smashed against the tree. George looks around, but his car is nowhere to be seen and the tree is undamaged. What's the matter? Well, this is where I left my car and it isn't here. You have no car. Well, I had a car and it was right here. I guess somebody moved it. Close shot at the curb. The owner of the house passes with some Christmas packages under his arm. Good evening. Oh, say, hey, uh, where's my car? I beg your pardon? My, my car, my car. I'm the, I'm the fellow that owns the car that ran into your tree. What tree? What do you mean, what tree? This tree here, I ran into it. Cut a big gash in the side of it there. The owner bends down to examine the trunk of the tree, then straightens up and smells George's breath. He backs away. You must mean two other trees. You had me worried. One of the oldest trees in Pottersville. Pottersville? What? You mean Bedford Falls? I mean Pottersville. Don't you think I know where I live? What's the matter with you? The owner proceeds towards his house. George is completely bewildered. Oh, I don't know. Either I'm off my nut or he is. Or you are. It isn't me. Well, maybe I left the car up at Martini's. Well, come on, Gabriel. He puts his arm around Clarence and they start off up the road. Clarence. Clarence, Clarence. And here your next car. It is Martini's place, but it's almost unrecognizable. The cheerful Italian feeling is gone. It is now more of a hard-drinking joint, a honky-tonk. Same bar, tables have no covers, people are lower down and tougher. Nick, the bartender, is behind the bar. George and Clarence come in. George does not notice the difference, but Clarence is all eyes and beaming. They go up to the bar. That's all right. Go on in. Martini's a good friend of mine. Two people leave the bar as they approach. There's a place to sit down. Sit down. Medium close-up. Nick is wiping off the bar as they sit down. Hello, Nick. Hey, where's Martini? Hello, Martini? Uh, No, no, Martini, your boss. Where is he? (laughs) Look, I'm the boss. You want a drink or not? Uh, Okay. Uh, All right. Uh, Double bourbon. Quick. Okay. What's yours? I was just thinking, it's been so long since I... Uh, look, look, mister, I, I'm standing here waiting for you to make up your mind. Oh, that's a good man. I was just thinking of a flaming rum punch. No, it's not cold enough for that. Not nearly cold enough. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got it. Mulled wine, heavy on the cinnamon, and light on the cloves. Off with you, me lad, and be lively. Hey. Look, mister, we serve hard drinks in here for men who want to get drunk fast. We don't need any characters around to give the joint atmosphere. Is that clear? Do I have to slip you my left for a convincer? As he says this, Nick leans over the counter and puts his left fist nearly in Clarence's eye. Clarence is puzzled by this conduct. What's he talking about? Nick, Nick, just give him the same as mine. Huh? He's okay. Okay. Nick turns away to get the drinks. What's the matter with him? 
I never saw Nick act like that before. You'll see a lot of strange things from now on. Oh, yeah. Hey, little fellow. You worry me. You got some place to sleep? No. You don't, huh? Well, you got any money? Nick is listening no. suspiciously to this conversation. No. I wonder you jumped in that river. I jumped in the river to save you, and so I could get my wings. Oh, that's right. Nick stops pouring the drinks, bottle poised in his hand. A cash register bell rings off stage. Clarence reacts to the sound of the bell. Oh, somebody's just made it. Made what? Every time you hear a bell, it means some angel's just got his wings. George glances up at Nick. Look, I think maybe you better not mention getting your wings around here. Why? Don't they believe in angels? Uh, yeah, but, you know. Then why should they be surprised when they see one? He never grew up. He's... How old are you anyway, Clarence? 293 next May. Nick slams the bottle down on the counter. That does it. Out you two pixies go. Through the door or out the window. Oh, look, Nick, what's wrong? That's another thing. Where do you come off calling me Nick? Well, Nick, that's your name, isn't it? What's that got to do with it? I don't know you from Adam's off ox. Oh, you, Rummy, come here, come here. A small wreck of a man with weak, watery eyes, obviously a broken down panhandler, his hat in his hand. Close up of George, he can hardly believe his eyes. It's Gower, the druggist. Back to the shot of Nick at the bar. Didn't I tell you never to come panhandling around here? Nick picks up a seltzer bottle and squirts Gower in the face with it. The crowd laughs brutally. Gower smiles weakly as the soda runs off his face. Close shot of George, horrified, leaps up and goes over to Gower. Mr. Gower! Mr. Gower, this is this is George Bailey. Don't you know me? No. Throw him out. Throw him out. The bouncers throw Gower out the front door. George rushes to the bar. Hey, what is... Hey, Nick, Nick. Isn't that Mr. Gower, the druggist? You know, that, that's another reason for me not to like you. That rumhead spent 20 years in jail for poisoning a kid. If you know him, you must be a jailbird yourself. You show these gentlemen to the door, please? Sure. This way, gentlemen. Exterior of Nick's bar. George and Clarence come flying through the door and land in the snow. Nick at the cash register, busily ringing the bell. Hey, get me. I'm giving out wings. Exterior, Nick's bar. George and Clarence lying in the snow. George has a strange, puzzled look on his face. They remain for a moment as they landed, looking at each other. You see, George, you were not there to stop Bauer from putting that poison into the pills. What do you, what do you mean I wasn't there? I remember distinctly. George Clat catches a glimpse of the front of the building with the neon sign over the door. It now reads Nick's place instead of Martini's. George and Clarence get to their feet. Hey, what's going on around here, huh? This ought to be Martini's place. He points to the sign and looks at Clarence. Clarence sort of hangs his head. George fixes him with a very interested look. Look, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. George, still looking at him, goes up to him and pokes his arm. It's flesh. Yeah, yeah, I know you told me that. What else are you? What, are, are, are you a hypnotist? No, of course not. 
Well, then, why am I seeing all these strange things? Don't you understand, George? It's because you were not born. Then if I wasn't born, who am I? You're nobody. You have no identity. George rapidly searches his pockets for identification, but without success. What do you mean, no identity? My name's George Bailey. George Bailey, you see? George Bailey. There is no George Bailey. You have no papers, no cards, no driver's license, no F4, no insurance policy. He says these things as George searches for them. George looks at it in, in his watch pocket. They're not there either. What? Zuzu's petals. George feverishly continues to turn his pockets inside out. You've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like without you. George is completely befuddled. Now, wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. As this is some sort of funny dream I'm having here, guys. So long, mister. I'm going home. He starts off. Clarence rises. Home? What home? Uh, now shut up. Cut it out. You're, 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 you're crazy. That's what I think. You're screwy and you're driving me crazy too. I'm seeing things. I'm, I'm going home and I have to see my wife and family. Do you understand that? And I'm going home alone. George strides off hurriedly. Clar- Clarence slowly follows him, glancing up towards heaven as, as he goes. How am I doing, Joseph? Thanks. You know, I didn't have a drink. Exterior street. George moves into the scene. The sign bearing the name of the town reads Pottersville. George looks at it with surprise, then starts up the street towards the main part of town. As he goes, the camera moves with him. The character of the place is completely changed. Where before it was quiet, orderly town, now it has a nature like a frontier village. We see a series of shots of nightclubs, cafes, bars, liquor stores, pool halls, and the like, with blaring jazz music issuing from the majority of them. The motion picture theater has become a burlesque house. Gower's drugstore is now a pawnbroker's establishment, and so on. Close shot, George stops before we, what used to be the offices of the building and loan. There's a garish electric sign over the entrance reading, Welcome Jitterbugs. A crowd of people are watching the police who are raiding the place, dragging out a number of screaming women whom they throw into patrol wagon. George talks to one of the cops. Hey, 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 where, where, did, where did the building and loan move to? Building and what? The Bailey building and loan. It was up there. They went out of business years ago. George sees the struggling figure of Violet Bick arrayed as a chart being dragged into the patrol wagon. Hey, Violet. Hey, hey, listen, that's Violet Bick. I know. I know. I know that girl. Hmm. The cop shoves George to one side. He looks around and sees Ernie's taxi cruising slowly by. Hey, hey, Ernie, Ernie. Exterior street. Ernie stops the cab and George enters it. Ernie, take me home. I'm off my nut. Where do you live? Ah, now, doggone it, Ernie. Don't you start pulling that stuff. You know where I live. 23 Sycamore. Now hurry up. Okay. 23 Sycamore? Yeah, yeah. Hurry up. Zuzu's sick. All right. He pulls down the flag on the meter and starts the cab. Interior cab, medium close-up on George and Ernie. Ernie is puzzled by the stranger. 
Look here, Ernie, straighten me out here. I've got some bad liquor or something. Listen to me now. Now, you are Ernie Bishop, and you live in Bailey Park with your wife and kid, right? Well, that's right, isn't it? You've seen my wife? I've seen your wife. I've been to your house a hundred times. Look, bud, what's the idea? I live in a shack in Pottersfield, and my wife ran away three years ago and took the kid. I ain't never seen you before in my life. Okay, just step on it. Just, just get me home. Ernie turns to the driving, but he's worried about his passenger. As he passes the burlesque house, he sees Bert the cop standing beside the police car. Attracting his attention, he motions to Bert to follow him, indicating he is a nut in the back. Bert gets into his car and follows. Wiped to George's house at night. Medium long shot, the taxi pulls up to the curb and stops. The crab is parked. George gets out and looks at the house. This is the place? Of course it's the place. Well, this house ain't been lived in for 20 years. Exterior house. George is stopped momentarily by the appearance of the house. Windows are broken. The porch sags. One section of the roof has fallen. Doors and shutters hang askew on their hinges. Like a doomed man, George approaches the house. Exterior cab. The police car is pulled up beside the cab and Bert and Ernie stand watching George's actions. Oh, what's up, Ernie? I don't know. We better keep an eye on this guy. He's bats. Ernie switches on the spotlight of his cab and turns the beam toward the old house. Interior hallway of George's house. The interior of the house is lit up here and there, ghost-like by Ernie's spotlight. No furniture, cobwebs, wallpaper hanging and swinging. Stairs are broken and collapsed. In a voice that sounds like a cry for help, George yells out. Mary. Mary. Tommy. Pete. Janie. Zozo. Where are you? Clarence suddenly appears leaning against a wall. They're not here, George. You have no children. Where are you? What have you done with them? Interior doorway. Bert is standing in the entrance with his gun in his hand. Bernie is a few feet behind him, ready to run. All right, put up your hands. No fast moves. Come out of here, both of you. Bert, thank heaven you're here. He rushes towards Bert. Stand back. Bert, what's happened to this house? Where, where's Mary? Where's my kids? Watch him, Bert. Come on. Come on. Bert, Ernie, what's the matter with you two guys? You were here on my wedding night. You, both of you, stood out here on the porch and and sung to us. Don't you remember? I I'd better be going. Look, now, don't you be a good kid and we'll we'll take you to a doctor. Everything's going to be all right. Bert tries to lead George away by the arm, but George struggles with him, trying to explain. Bert, now listen to me. Ernie, will you, will you take me over to my mother's house? Bert, listen. It's that fellow there. He he says he's an angel. He's trying to hypnotize me. I hate to do this, fella. Bert raises his gun to hit George on the head. As he does so, Clarence starts in and fixes his teeth in Bert's wrist, forcing him, forcing him to let George go. Run, George! Run, George! George dashes out of the house and down the street as Bert grapples with Clarence, and as they fall to the ground wrestling, we see Bert kneeling, trying to put handcuffs on Clarence. Help! Joseph! Help! Shut up! Help! Joseph! Joseph! Help! Suddenly, Clarence disappears from under Bert's hands. Bert gets up, amazed by his vanishing. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? I had him right here! Ernie's hair is now standing on end with fright. Uh, I need a drink. 
He runs out of the scene. Which way did they go? Help me find them! Exterior Bailey home, night. George runs up the path to the front house, front door of the house and raps on the door. He rings the bell and taps on the glass when his attention is caught by a sign of the wall reading Ma Bailey's boarding house. Medium close-up of George at the door. The door opens and a woman appears. It is Mrs. Bailey, but she's changed amazingly. Her face is harsh and tired. In her eyes, once kindly and understanding, there is now cold suspicion. She gives no sign that she knows him. Well... Mother. Mother, what do you want? It is a cruel blow to George. Mother, this is, this is George. I thought sure you'd remember me. George who? You're looking for a room. There's no vacancy. She starts to close the door, but George stops her. Oh, mother, mother, please help me. Something terrible's happening to me. I, I don't know what it is. Something's happening to everybody. Please, let me come in. Keep me here until I get over it. Get over what? I don't take in strangers unless they're sent here by somebody I know. Well, I know everybody you know. Your brother-in-law, Uncle Billy. You know him? Well, sure I do. When did you last see him? Today, over at the house. That's a lie. He's been in the insane asylum since ever since he lost his business, and if you ask me, that's where you belong. She slams the door shut in George's face. George stands a moment, stunned. Then he turns and runs to the sidewalk until his face fills the screen. His features are distorted by the emotional chaos within him. We see Clarence leaning on the mailbox at the curb, holding his volume of Tom Sawyer in his hand. Strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives, and when he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? I've heard of things like this. You got me in some kind of a spell or something while... I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna get out of it. I'll, I'll get out of it. I, I know how, too. Well, I, the, the last man I talked to before all of this stuff started happening to me was Martini. You know where he lives? Sure, I know where he lives. He lives in Bailey Park. They walk out of the scene. Exterior cemetery. George and Clarence approach the trees from which the Bailey Park sign once hung. Now it is just outside the cemetery, which graves where, with with graves where the houses used to be. Are you sure this is Bailey Park? I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park, but where are the houses? The two walk into the cemetery. You weren't here to build them. Close moving shot. George wandering like a lost soul among the tombstones. Clarence trotting at his heels. Again, George stops to stare with frightened eyes at a tombstone. Upon it is graved a name, Harry Bailey. Feverishly, George scrapes away the snow covering the rest of the inscription, and we read, In memory of our beloved son, Harry Bailey, 1911 to 1919. Close shot, George and Clarence. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at age nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Close up of George and Clarence. Clarence? Yes, George? Where's Mary? Oh, well, I can't. I don't know how you know these things, but tell me, where is she? George grabs Clarence by the coat collar and shakes him. 
is. I. If you know where she is, tell where my wife is. I'm not supposed to tell. Please, Clarence, tell me where she is. You're not going to like it, George. Where is she? She's an old maid. She never married. Where's Mary? Where is she? She's... Where is she? She's just about to close the library. George lets Clarence go and runs off. Clarence falls to the ground where he rubs his neck. There must be some easier way for me to get my wings. Wipe to the exterior of the library. Close shot as Mary comes out of the door, then turns and locks it. We see George watching her from the sidewalk. Mary's very different. No more buoyancy in her walk. None of Mary's abandon and love of life. Glasses, no makeup, lips compressed, elbows close to the body. She looks flat and dried up and extremely self-satisfied and efficient. Close up, George, as he watches her. Close shot, George and Mary on the sidewalk. Mary. She looks up, surprised, but not recognizing him, continues on. Mary. Mary starts to run away from him, and he follows desperately. Mary, Mary. He, wa- he catches up with her, grabs her by the arms, and keeps her in a tight grip, grip blah, and keeps a tight grip on her. She struggles to free herself. Mary, it's George. Don't you know me? What's happened to us? I don't know you. Let me go. Mary, please, oh, don't do this to me. Please, please, Mary, where's where's our kids? I need you, Mary, help me, Mary, please. Mary breaks away from him and dashes into the first door she comes to, the Blue Moon Bar. Interior Blue Moon, close shot. Small tables, booths, perhaps a counter, it is crowded. Many of the people are the same who were present during the run on the building and loan. Mary comes running in, screaming. The place goes into an uproar. George comes in, practically insane. Some of the men grab and hold on to him. Mary, let me go. Mary, don't run away. Somebody call the police. Hit him him with a bottle. He needs a straitjacket. That man, stop him. Tom, Ed, Charlie, that's my wife. Mary lets out a final scream, then faints into the arms of a couple of women at the bar. Mary. Oh, no, you don't. Mary. George can't fight through the men holding him. Desperately, he thinks of Clarence and heads for the door. Clarence? Clarence, where are you? Exterior sidewalk. Just as George breaks through the door, Bert arrives in his police car. He gets out and heads for the door to run into George as he comes out. Oh, it's you! He grabs for George, who lets him have one square on the button. Let's him have one square on the button. Oh, knocking him down. And then continues running down the street, yelling for Clarence. Bert gets up and takes out his gun and fires several shots after the fleeing figure. That's crazy. Stand back! Bert gets in the police car and the siren screaming. That's off in pursuit of George. Wipe to the bridge over the river. The same part of the bridge where George was standing before Clarence jumped in. The wind is blowing as it had through, all through this sequence. George comes running into the shot. He's frantically looking for Clarence. Clarence, 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 help me, Clarence. Get me back, get me back. I I don't care what happens to me. Only get me back to my wife and kids. Please help me, Clarence. Please, 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 Clarence. I want to live again. Close up of George leaning on the bridge railing, praying. I want to live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, please, God, let me live again. George sobs. 
Suddenly, towards the end of the above, the wind dies down, a soft, gentle snow begins to fall. Close shot of George, sobbing at the railing. The police car pulls up on the roadway behind him, and Bert comes into the scene. Hey, George! George, you all right? George backs away and gets set to hit Bert again. Hey, 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 what's the matter? Get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out. What the Sam hell are you yelling for, George? Uh, don't. George. George talks hopefully. George touches Bert unbelievingly. George's mouth is bleeding again. Bert, do you know me? Know you? Are you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car pulled, piled uh, uh, into that tree down there, and I thought maybe... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. I'm sure you're all right. What did... George touches his lip with his tongue, wipes his mouth with his hand, laughs happily. His rapture knows no bounds. Oh, my mouth is bleeding, Bert. My mouth's bleeding. Susu's petals. Susu's... They're right here, Bert. What do you know about that? Merry Christmas. He practically embraces the astonished Bert, then runs at top speed towards town. Long shot of George runs away from the camera, yelling. Merry. Merry. White to a residential street at night. George's wrecked car is smashed against the tree. He comes running into the shot, sees the car, lets out a triumphant yell, pats the car, and dashes on. Exterior Main Street, Bedford Falls. Close shot. George sees the Potterville sign is now replaced by the original. You are now in Bedford Falls sign. Hello, Bedford Falls. He turns and runs the falling snow up the main street of town. As he runs, he notices that the town is back in its original appearance. He passes some of the late, late shoppers on the street. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, George. Exterior theater night, pan shot as George runs by. Merry Christmas, movie house. Pan shot of George running by the Emporium. Merry Christmas, Emporium. Exterior building and loan offices. Pan shot as George runs by. Merry Christmas, you wonderful old building and loan. Exterior bank night. George notices a light in Potter's office window and races across the street. Interior Potter's office. Potter is seated working at his desk. His goon by his side. George pounds on the window. Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. George runs off as Potter looks up from his work. Happy New Year to you. In jail. Go on home. They're waiting for you. Interior George's home. The lights are on. There's a fire in the fireplace. The Christmas tree is fully decorated with presents stacked around. Interior entrance hall. Carter, the bank examiner, a newspaper reporter and photographer, and a sheriff are waiting in the hall for George. George comes dashing in the front door. Mary. Oh, well, hello, Mr. Bank Examiner. He grabs his hand and shakes it. Mr. Bailey, there's a deficit. You've disarmed me with your vigorous handshaking. I, I know, I know, $8,000. George, I've got a little paper here. I'll bet it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? Merry Christmas. The photographer sets off a flashbulb. Reporters, where's Mary? 
Mary. George runs to the kitchen. He gets no answer as he goes. Oh, look at this wonderful old drafty house, Mary. Mary. He comes running back to the hall. Have you seen my wife? Merry Christmas, Daddy. <laughs> Interior stairs. The three children are at the top of the stairs. They're in their pajamas. George starts to run up the stairs and the old familiar knob on the banister comes off in his hand. He kisses it lovingly and puts it back, then continues up the stairs. Oh, Pete, kids. J.D., tell me. Oh, I can eat you up. Top of the stairs. George and the kids, and he is hugging them. Where's your mother? Jan looking for you with Uncle Billy. Zuzu comes running out of her bedroom. George crushes her to him. Daddy! Oh, Zuzu. Zuzu, my little ginger snap. How do you feel? Fine. And not with a snitch of a temperature. Not a smitch of <laughs> Interior hallway as Mary comes through the door, breathless and excited. The four men are watching with open mouths. Oh, hallelujah. Hello. George, darling. On the stairs, Mary races up the stairs where George meets her in a fierce embrace. Mary, Mary. Oh, George, darling, where have you been? George and Mary embrace tearfully. George, George, George. Mary, let me touch you. You're real. George, George. You have no idea what's happened to me. You have no idea what happened. He stops her with a kiss. She leads him excitedly down the stairs. Well, come on, George. Come on downstairs quick. They're on their way. All right. In the living room, Mary leads George, who is carrying a couple of kids on his back, to a position in front of the Christmas tree. Come on in here now. Now you stand right over there by the tree. Right there. And, and don't move. Don't move. I hear him now, George. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. She runs toward the front door and flings it open. Ad-lib sounds of an excited crowd can be heard. Uncle Billy, face flushed, covered with snow, carrying a clothes basket filled with money, bursts in. He's followed by Ernie and about 20 more townspeople. Come in, Uncle Billy. Everybody in here. Uncle Billy, Mary, and the crowd come into the living room. A table stands in front of George. George picks up Zuzu to protect her from the mob. Uncle Billy dumps a basket full of money out onto the table. The money overflows and falls all over. Isn't it wonderful? The rest of the crowd all greet George with greetings and smiles. Each one comes forward with money. In their pockets, in shoeboxes, in coffee pots, money pours onto the table. Pennies, dimes, quarters, dollar bills, small money, but lots of it. Mrs. Bailey and Mrs. Hatch push towards George. More people come in. The place becomes a bedlam. Shouts of gangway, gangway as the new bunch comes in and pours out its money. Mary stands next to George watching him. George stands there overcome and speechless as he holds Zuzu. As he sees the familiar faces, he gives them sick grins. Tears course down his face. His, lip, his lips frame their names as he greets them. Mary did it, George. Mary did it. She told a few people you were in trouble, and they scattered all over town collecting money. They didn't ask any questions, just said, if George is in trouble, count on me. You never saw anything like it. Tom comes in, digging in his purse as he comes. What is this, George? Another run on the bank? Charlie adds his money to the pile. There you are, George. Merry Christmas. Ernie's trying to get some system into the chaos. The line forms on the right. 
Mr. Martini comes in bearing a mixing bowl overflowing with cash. Mr. Martini, Merry Christmas. Step right up here. I busted the jukebox too. <laughs> Martini dumps his money on the table. Mr. Gower enters with a large glass jar jammed full of notes. Mr. Gower. I made the rounds of my. Violet Thicke arrives and takes out the money George had given her for her trip to New York. Oh, Violet Dick. I'm not going to go, George. I changed my mind. Annie enters, digging money out of her long stocking. I've been saving this money for a divorce, if ever I get a husband. Mr. Partridge, the high school principal, is the next donor. There you are, George. I got the faggoty all up out of bed. And here's something for you to play with. He hands his watch to Zuzu. A man gives over some money. I wouldn't have a roof over my head if it wasn't for you, George. Ernie's reading a telegram he's just received. Just a minute. Quiet. Everybody. Quiet. Quiet. Now this is from London. Mr. Gower cables you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas. Sam Rainwright. The crowd breaks into a cheer as Ernie drops the telegram on top of a pile of money on the table. Mr. Martini, how about some wine? As various members of the family bring, bring out a punch bowl and glasses, Janie sits down at the piano and strikes a chord. She starts playing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and the entire crowd joins in the singing. We see a series of shots of the various groups singing the hymn, and some people are still coming in and dropping their money on the table. Carter, the bank examiner, makes a donation. The sheriff sheepishly looks at George and tears the warrant in small pieces. In the midst of this scene, Harry, in naval uniform, enters, accompanied by Bert, the cop. Hello, George. How are you? Oh, Harry. Harry. Mary, looks like I got here too late. <laughs> Mary, I got him here from the airport as quickly as I could. Fool fell all over the place in the blizzard. Oh, Mr. Harry enters the scene. Harry, how about your banquet in New York? No, I left right in the middle of it as soon as I got Mary's telegram. Ernie hands Harry a glass of wine. Good idea, Ernie. A toast to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. Once more, the crowd breaks into cheering and applause. Janie at the piano and Bert on his accordion start playing Old Lang Syne and everyone joins in. Close shot on George, still holding Zuzu in his arms, glances down at the pile of money on the table. His eye catches something on top of the pile and he reaches down for it. It's Clarence's copy of Tom Sawyer. George opens it and finds an inscription written in it. Dear George, remember no man is a failure who has friends. Thanks for the wings. Love, Clarence. Mary looks at the book. What's that? That's a Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. At this moment, perhaps because of the jostling of some of the people on the other side of the tree, a little silver bell on the Christmas tree swings to and fro with a silvery tinkle. Zuzu clo closes the cover of the book and points to the bell. Look, Daddy. Teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. He looks up towards the ceiling and winks. Boy, Clarence. <laughs> the voices of the people singing swell into a final crescendo for the fade out. The end.
old acquaintance he forgot. Forgot. Thanks. <laughs> 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 <laughs>